0: You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from a fanfiction story titled The White Road, written by today's guest fanfiction author, Perverse Idol. Layers of darkness reclaim the forest. Blurry and impenetrable, gradually yielding to snowlight, The soft sound of Harry's panting and the tiny, ghostly clouds that mark each breath. In another second, Lily discerns his silhouette detaching from the background, moving about. But it's Snape she watches. Snape with his arms folded and his shoulders hunched. Snape in turn watches Harry. With his eyes, of course, but in a larger sense with his entire body. Lily rewinds and starts again once she realizes how whole-souled Snape's focus is. He's attuned to everything Harry does. Every small infraction, every failure to be careful, his bewilderment and inexperience. Each incautious tread and red-nosed sniffle, each cough and flash of lens and iridescent sheen of magic that emanates from the boy, Severus witnesses and absorbs into himself. He huddles against the tree as silent as the snow upon the ground, but his entire being is bent upon Harry. He never steps forward, and only twice reacts in any overt way. The first time, when Harry strips naked to enter the lake, Lily sees Snape's eyes enlarge in his white face, and the quality of his watching intensifies by several magnitudes. The second time, when Harry flails deeper into the freezing water, and the surface smooths over and goes mirror still. When he doesn't emerge, Snape snaps to attention. Sparks cascade from his wand as it whips into the air. He starts to cast, but a splintering sound interrupts him, the crunching of ice-bound twigs as the Weasley boy crashes out of the trees and plunges into the lake to save his friend. Snape lowers the wand, and an unvoiced specter curls from his lips. An exhaled prayer of relief when the boys thrash ashore Harry coughing up water and convulsing from the bone deep chill the two of them dragging the magnificent sword between them Snape shifts his feet and refolds his arms breathing deeply Lily has no doubt that he's repressing the desire to go wrap his winter robes around that goose fleshed body Harry's bare skin pearly and dripping ice water in the soft lumos Snape witnesses the destruction of the locket He stays, even after Ron helps Harry pull on his knitted layers and limp back to camp. Once the silence and the darkness have settled again, and Lily can hear the ice break and the report of a frozen branch like a gunshot in the distance, he focuses on the place where Harry struggled out of his shabby clothes and extends one black-sleeved arm. Expecto Patronum. The dough forms shimmering at the end of his wand, and the lake turns molten silver this is dangerous. Snape seems driven by something he can't control, now that it's only himself at stake. Brilliant and unearthly, the Patronus soars into the air and twists back on itself, touching down again directly in front of him. Snape holds utterly still, bathed in the luminous magic of remembered happiness. Happiness. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world. Greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I just want to say something about the fanfiction work that we're discussing today. It's called The White Road. When I first started this podcast, I shared my personal manifesto on fanfiction And I specifically mentioned wanting to push back against some of the more unfortunate stereotypes around fanfiction that exist outside the community. Outside the fanfiction community, people often like to say that fanfiction is nothing more than poorly written drivel. And I'm not saying that that doesn't exist. What I am saying is that if you take a deeper look, you will find things. Thousands of fan fiction stories written so goddamn beautifully that they rival the quality of professionally published works. When I say that, what I am talking about are works like The White Road. If you are a Harry Potter fan, if you are a Snary fan especially, and you have never read The White Road, I want you to pause this episode, run to AO3, and pull up The White Road by Perverse Idol. You can also find the direct link at fanfakemaverickpodcast.com in the show notes. Give it a read, and then come back and resume the episode. You'll thank me later. I'm so pleased to say that our special guest fanfiction author today is Perverse Idol. She loves reading and writing so much that she owns and runs a secondhand bookstore. Perverse Idol also loves cats, gardening, she grows her own roses, y'all, and describes herself as a tea addict. Perverse Idol, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. How are you today? I am delighted to be here. A little nervous, but delighted. I first read your story a few years ago and was such a fan, it went straight into my bookmarks after I was finished. And I am just so delighted to have you here today. Of course, we have to start at the beginning, though, with fanfiction history, because I want to know all about your fanfiction origin story. When and how
1: did you first discover fanfiction and what was that like? I'm actually a fairly older I'm an older fan. I've been around fandom on the outskirts for a long time, but not as a participant. And I was a sci-fi and fantasy reader and a kind of hanger-on around what I guess I would call true nerddom. And I found out about fanfiction through the photocopied, explicit Kirk Spock fix that were circulating amongst those who knew. Yes. (laughs) Now, are we talking about
0: just the ones that, (laughs) you know, you passed under the table to your friends? Or are we talking about the fanzine editions? These are
1: stories that got, I think, photocopied and passed and mailed, actually snail mailed to the people who must have been on mailing lists. I was never on the mailing list. I got mine because a customer in one of the bookstores I worked at, she, I don't even know how it came up. But she had some of these and she wondered if I would be interested in reading them. And I said, of course I would. And so I got slipped one of these manila folders. <laughs> it had three stories in it. And, so, and I read them all and they were all explicit. And that was a confirmation of something I already knew about myself. I knew I was a Slash fan. I didn't know the term for it at the time. So, oh, I actually also, that reminds me. At about the same time, I think, Joanna Russ published an essay. Her essay was 1985. And the title of it was Pornography for Women by Women with Love. And it was one of the first sort of professional defenses of fan fiction and admissions on the part of a professional writer that she read fan fiction. There was also knowledge that I found out later. Everybody knew that she also wrote Star Trek original Star Trek fan fiction. And I had that delighted sense of, yes, that's me. (laughs) That's me in that essay. (laughs) So thank heaven, somebody actually said it out loud. Yes.
0: Well, and what a crazy thing to say back in the 80s. Yes. Right? People were not talking
1: about that back then. No. And part of the reason she wrote it was because of the mockery. And she wanted to make it clear that women had a right to their own versions of pornography and romance and what made us, I mean, this, I'm going to interrupt myself because of the later developments where, of course, fandom expands to be for everybody. But at the time, there was so much derogatory statements being made about middle-class wives in their kitchens, reading and writing fan fiction and how that alone is what made it ridiculous. So she was responding to that. But that sort of ended there for me. I didn't pursue fandom. I didn't I wasn't actually involved with whoever the mailing list was. So it was actually a couple of decades later, you know, enter the internet, enter online communities, and I just happened across an article that was one of the many 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 overviews that I think probably were filler, the kind of filler articles where you hire somebody who writes a really shallow Ha ha ha! Sort of. Oh, this will be entertaining and amusing. Kind of flippant essay, and it was all about fan fiction, and it was mostly looking down its nose. But it also printed a URL to a what I think they actually called themselves the Good Fan Fiction site or the Good Fanfic site. So out of curiosity, I typed it in, and I went over there, and at the time, and I was trying to figure out what would I be interested in looking at, and I came across the Lord of the Rings category. And Ah, yeah, it was right. I think it was right after the third film had come out. So the trilogy was complete. The movie trilogy. The link that I followed was, it took me to a Jen fic about Boromir being really puzzled and charmed by Hobbits, especially Marian Pippin. And it was delightful. It was well-written. It was sweet and funny. And I branched out right away and found the not-safe-for-work stories (laughs) and went and dug up through the internet and found an archive called West of the Moon, which was all Privy Hobbit fanciers. Oh, I think I remember that one. (laughs) I think I was there. (laughs) And I read all of the Frodo Sam fics on there that were to my liking. And there's a lovely, they they actually did a lot of the writers tried to if not emulate at least honor the pastoral quality of Tolkien so that was a big draw and also there was for, because it was the frodo sam ship there was a lot of angst and i love angst <laughs> Me too. Me too. In fact, we probably read a
0: lot of the same fix on there uh-huh. because I do remember. I remember those. Oh my god! Especially like you said, with the movies just had come out and the trilogy is complete, and now you want
1: more. Right? And
0: the movies gave us just enough angst, right? Just exactly. enough to make us wanting more. So
1: it, yes, it's well, and also I had read Lord of the Rings when I was thirteen, and. Frodo sails away. But then in the appendices, it says that Sam was granted out of all of, you know, hobbitdom to be allowed to sail into the West and follow him. And so that the bittersweetness of that, like it's, it's almost a tragic ship. But there's this little moment of hope and of realizing that Sam remained loyal to Frodo, even through, you know, the next 90 years of his life. And he waited until it was time, the end of his life, to follow him. And that sort of thing, that just makes me, know, like, clutch my heart.
0: (laughs) Right, right. It's that soft, tragic, romantic love story.
1: Yes. Yeah, where Frodo sacrificed everything and was so changed that he no longer belonged. In order to heal, he had to leave. And so, you know, you have tons of angst coming out of that whole, the whole journey there. But then at the end, there's just enough, especially for a a slash ship, I think, because that is not at all what Tolkien meant. (laughs) But but we find our own subtext, you know, the subtext that we were looking for. And it was there. (laughs) And in the movies where you have Frodo giving Sam that long head kiss as he says goodbye before he boards the ship. It's like, okay, yeah, I can work with that.
0: Oh, good God. There were so many stories probably based on that one scene alone. (laughs) Yes,
1: yes. yes. It launched a thousand fics.
0: (laughs) Oh, it did. I love that, though, because that's so representative of what the fanfiction scene was like. Back in yes. that era, you yes. know, because I remember exactly what you're talking about. So you remember a lot of the th- same things that I remember. Then you probably remember Fanfiction.net coming on the scene. You yes. remember the live journal days. Oh, yeah. You know all of that stuff. So you've seen a lot of change in fandom.
1: I have. I was not around for what did they call them? List serves, mailing lists. There's another forums, yeah, Usenet
0: servers, right?
1: That predated my entry into fandom, but. I almost drifted away. After Lord of the Rings, I was like, okay, I no longer am, am that connected. And the thing <gasps> that happened, and I wish I had a clearer memory of this, because I will never stop referring to this as, then lightning struck. <laughs> <laughs> and I came across a reference to somebody reviewing or talking about Snape Harry. Snape slash Harry. Yeah and i was just like a casual potter reader i wasn't really deep into the books and i didn't like the movies but whoa (laughs) that was like that's like lightning out of the sky and like a direct shot to my shipping brain and i was instantly hooked i admit i had that first what everybody would be bound to have a Really? <laughs> Snape and Harry? Are you kidding? Oh, <laughs> what? But I love
0: that. That <laughs> Snary brought you back
1: and made you stay. Oh, it was like instant chemistry, like an electrical charge. Like, oh, right. I have to go find this. And that's when I found Live Journal.
0: Ah, yes. Yes.
1: Yes. And there was
0: quite a lot of... Um, Snary activity, shall we yes, say, there happening was. There was. Live
1: Journal at that time. It yes. was a hotbed. <laughs> there was, well, it was, you know, it was its own corner, which was actually, I think, what made it such a ferment. It was so creative because Live Journal made it possible to kind of be off in your own spot. You didn't have to have the entire fandom breathing down your neck. And when I fell into <laughs> the snarry Fandom on journal, there were a lot of older women in it, a lot of, I don't, I actually have no idea how many of them had been in fandom before and how many came in with Harry Potter, but they were distinct from what I consider the kind of fandom personality now because they were very cheerfully raunchy, lots of talent, but very supportive and irreverent and self-aware of, you know, they were aware of the implications of all of this because everybody was shipping Snape with student Harry. That was, you know, we were in that part of the series and, you know, the stories came out of what was in the books then. And, and also most people were absolutely devoted to Snape, the unmitigated arsehole. So, that was the Snape I was looking for. <laughs> so, right, right. So we're talking about a,
0: <laughs> a group of people that did not shy away from the truth.
1: Right. No, his cruelty and pettiness and especially, I think, his moral ambiguity. Those were all features, not bugs. Everybody loved Snape because of those things, not making it an exception, not despite them. So that was really good for me. (laughs) I found my people right away. I love that. (laughs) I
0: love that. Now, that's awesome. And I am going to ask you more about Severus Snape here in a few minutes, of course, because we have talked about him on the show before, but of course, there's so much more to say. So I can't wait (laughs) to to ruminate on that with (laughs) you. Yes, yes, of course, of course. (laughs) But I want to know, was it Snary that made you decide to try your own hand at fanfiction for the first time?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, Snary is what made me go, I'm not sure what you'd call it, public. I actually took a pseudonym before I had totally been a lurker. I hadn't done any interacting with fandom at all, and I just wanted to be able to respond. I was so in love with the stories, and I felt less shut. I mean, it's not, I wasn't shut out in an archive. You don't really get that kind of conversation going. So on Life journal, it's different. You had people speaking up in each other's journals and conversations going on all over the place. And it seemed like a place I could dip my toe into. I was a little nervous because I still was grappling with the whole idea of you're taking somebody else's characters and writing about them. And as somebody who tried writing original fiction, I felt like, Am I desecrating something? Am I crossing a line here? So it, I had to get past that. Obviously, I did. <laughs> it, you know, I blasted past that at some point. But I got into Live Journal because I wanted to be able to tell all these wonderful Snape Harry writers how much I loved their work. And that's how I picked up various friendships. Because, yeah, people respond when you comment. Writers like getting comments for the most part. And um, I was very wordy and had a lot to say. So I happened upon one of the authors I really, really loved was, her name is Rinsbane, and she wrote beautiful stories. And I sort of just frothed and and blithered and whatever all over her journal. And she asked me to be her beta.
0: (gasps) Oh, that must have been amazing. It was amazing.
1: (laughs) She was so good. And of course I said yes. (laughs) So that drew me further in, and then conversations were happening on all sides, and I got to be sort of part of all the speculation, and the, let's see, they were called initially the Snary Olympics and then had to change their name, I think, to the Snary Games, and those were happening, and I got an invitation to join the Snary Games, and I thought, okay, (laughs) okay. If I'm gonna uh-huh. do it, this is this is a place <laughs> to do it. So yes, um, yeah, I signed up, and from there, that's how I actually broke through my own self-imposed timidity about writing fan fiction. Also, I had never written a sex scene before. And I decided this was going to be my inaugural attempt. Oh, at my. So wait, wait a second. This was your first fan
0: fiction and your first sex scene? Yes, yes.
1: Ooh! And it went oh. on four pages. <laughs> 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 oh, that's awful brave. I love it. <laughs> I look back at that now and go, oh, my God. You had a lot to say about that, didn't you? <laughs> Oh, but that must have felt exciting, though. Oh, it was so much fun. It was so much. I mean, the fact that Potterdom was, you know, at its peak, it didn't matter where you went on the internet. There were shipping communities all over the place and large gen communities, too. And everybody was creating and responding and anticipating and kind of clustering around their own... Particular dynamics and the styles that they were looking for, and forging friendships out of that. So, I feel like I happened along at the perfect time. I will never have as amazing a fandom experience as I did then. It will always be the high point. And I'm really grateful I just by accident tripped and fell <laughs> into Live Journal Snary Corner. When I did, because, yeah, it was so much fun. But what a happy
0: accident yes. that you happened upon it at its golden era, mm-hmm. right? Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. <laughs> now, you did mention here that you had been writing some original fiction before trying your hand at fan fiction. So I was wondering what inspired you to want to be a writer in the first place, and are there specific things that inspire you the most as a writer?
1: Well this is going back quite a ways because I haven't written original fic in a long time. I always, I was a bookworm. That I think is the beginning for a lot of potential writers is they are already in love with books and they live their lives through and develop their perspective through the lens of how books portray the world. Not so much as this is how it is, but that there are always alternate points of view and there's always another story. And one, I fell in love with language very early on. Pro style means a lot to me. I'm not a big proponent of the transparent or invisible pro style. Not that I dislike it, but I don't think it is, you know, the one style to rule them all. And that that tends to be a fan fiction tug-of-war, I've noticed, is that most people fall on the side of they don't want a style that they feel draws attention to itself. And when I started out writing original fiction, in a way, it was very much when you, when you start writing at all, you don't have an audience. You can do whatever you want. There's this. It's very much like fandom where you don't have the same sorts of restrictions and expectations and the scrupulousness that you have to bring to a work that you think is going to get published or that you hope will get published, you can do anything. So my first forays into writing were totally self-indulgent. And that was also one of the things I loved when I found fandom is that self-indulgence came back, I was allowed to do that again. But for years, because I was, amongst other things, I was a science fiction fantasy reader, it seemed as though anything that I wanted to write had to have some fantastical element to it. Just writing stories about real life does not inspire me at all. <laughs> and I don't know why that is. But I developed a set of, I guess, archetypes, or maybe the first versions of them appeared in my earliest stories. And later I realized, yeah, I tend to write the same kinds of <laughs> of dynamics and personalities over and over. And there are three, I think, major almost novel length stories that I never quite finished that all have similarities and they only I think only one of them would be worth ever going back to at this point. The others are I think are just too old. I don't think my connection to them has survived the many, many changes my life has put me through. But then I hit a writer's block, I had <clears throat> relationship issues <laughs> and <laughs> fell silent. In my writing for several years. And fan fiction actually also gave me the gift of breaking that writer's block for me, which was part of the joy of being in the community was not only was it fun, but hey, I was writing again after years of being blocked. So yeah, the original fiction, yeah, I'm not sure what to say about it in the context of a, a fandom interview. Nobody wants to hear me blabber on about it. <laughs> Stories that we'll never see the light of day. (laughs) But what you've
0: just said, I think it really helps us transition into the next part where we kind of talk about the concept of fan fiction. You mentioned that fan fiction brought that joy back, the joy of writing, Mm -hmm. right? I love talking about fan fiction as a concept because it is so many things to so many people, right? We can have a thousand conversations about fan fiction with a thousand different people and they're all gonna be just a little bit different. So I am wondering, what specifically does fan fiction mean to you? Why is it worth writing and reading? What are some of the good things that fan fiction has brought into your life?
1: First and foremost, I think, is that freedom to indulge. I don't have to please anybody but myself. Of course, I want to please other people, but I can wallow in my love of something Including my love of description, <laughs> I can go on and on about something. I can focus on the things that move me or excite me, and they don't have to follow necessarily the rules of good storytelling. I mean, I realize that I'm probably flying in the face of what a lot of fan fiction writers actually do believe, and that they complain about a lot that you know that the pacing was off or it didn't follow the usual development of storylines.
0: Didn't surf the plot or what have you. Exactly. Really.
1: <laughs> or it's all character study or it's the whole reason for writing this, the fic was because you want to create an emotional reaction in the reader. And I say, yeah, <laughs> I do. That's exactly <laughs> what I want to do. <laughs> if that's not enough for you, you can go over there and read about, you know, whatever the wrote, the spaceship, Specifications and time travel and all, you know, whatever it is yes. that makes you happy.
0: <laughs> I like to joke that emotions are the plot.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that is the plot. <laughs> really, in fan fiction, it is. It really is. I see so many, and this tends to be on, dare I say, I, I apologize for generalizing, but so many of the male fan fiction writers scorn romance. I mean, even if they they include it in their stories, when they're talking about shipping fix, they're condemning them because they're all focusing on the romance. And my retort to that is romance is a plot, guys. (laughs) That is the plot. If you don't like it, that's okay. But that you can't condemn it for what it is. It's doing what it sets out to do. So There's all kinds of, you know, snobbishness, I think, imported from outside because we all bring our ideas of what makes a good story into our reading time. And there is no story that's going to please everybody or is going to be to that person's particular indulgent taste.
0: Right, right. But, oh. I love that you have used that word twice now, indulgent, because uh, that's how it feels from the reader side as well. Yeah, right? yeah. When you get to indulge in that moment of angst or you get to indulge in that moment of redemption or grief or whatever is going on yeah. <laughs> in these stories or the romance of it. It is. It's so indulgent for the writer, I'm sure, but absolutely indulgent for the reader.
1: That's what the readers come here for, I think. Yes. I do, I do <laughs> as a reader. Yeah. I mean, I come from many things, of course. But one of the things that sets fan fiction apart from professional fiction is, for the most part, professional fiction purges those moments because they're they're melodramatic. They're exaggerated. And most fiction, with the exception perhaps of Genre romance, but then even that is doing a different thing. But professional fiction is not meant to submerge lovingly in the details <laughs> of, of the emotion. You're supposed to find a concise way of conveying it and then continue on with the plot. Whereas for me, in my pantheon of, oh, what am I here for? It's probably character first, prose style second. Um, emotions and then yeah if there's a plot (laughs) that's not fine with me sprinkle that shit in there (laughs) if you must so yeah, when somebody says oh that's just a character study i i'm like yeah give me the link (laughs) (laughs) yes yes one of my
0: favorite genres of fan fiction ever is the character study
1: yes because that's why i'm here (laughs) it's because i love the characters
0: that's beautiful Now, speaking of character studies, we have (laughs) to spend some time talking about Severus Snape in particular. You brought him up earlier. I did. (laughs) That's perfect. I want to revisit that a little bit. Earlier in the podcast and before we started recording, we were talking about (laughs) Severus Snape. And I think we were really remembering some of the older works in the Harry Potter fandom, particularly the Snape-centric works. And the reason we were talking about that is because your work, The White Road, that was written in 2008, published in 2009. So you could say it's a little bit vintage at this point. Yes. But I say, <laughs> because I've been reading Snape-centric fan fiction for a really long time, all of the stuff that I read from that era specifically, to me, is the golden age of Severus Snape-centric fan fiction, right? And I was sitting here, we were talking about it, and I was trying to understand, okay, why? Why would that be the golden age specifically? And you said something so interesting about how people were perhaps a little bit more honest about Severus Snape's character back then in the fanfiction works. It was perhaps a little more true to canon in the sense that writers did not sidestep or avoid some of the problematic elements of Severus Snape's personality.
1: Right. Yes. At least... This is a difficult one, I think, in the context of current capital D discourse, because I and many of the fans back then who started out in Live Journal reveled in the fact that Snape was an absolute bastard. He was complicated. He was a mystery until, you know, the last book, which we'll get to that. There were all these contradictions in his behavior. He enjoyed being cruel and bitter and petty. He, at the same time, was incredibly talented. Each book seemed to bring in something else. Oh, here's another thing that Snape can do. But as a human being, he seemed to be completely morally twisted. And the fandom at the time, and because I was in the, the snary corner of it, therefore the tension between him and Harry meant that we had what was basically a good character, the hero of the, of the series, who was intrinsically good. Harry doesn't really change much of the books. He doesn't need to learn how to be good at all. He always makes good choices, ultimately. Even if, in the moment, he does stupid things, I don't think there's ever any question that he's a good person. Whereas Snape is a mess. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, that's part of what makes him fascinating. He's a complete disaster. And the more that we figured, especially I think once The the Prince's Tale was published, so we could get backstory and it wiped out all the pure blood Snape and all the Snape Manor stories and fandom grappled with the fact that he was a working class kid who came out of a background of neglect and possibly really... Horrid poverty. Parts of Britain and in places in industrial towns like that, it's horrifying to look at the places that and conditions in which people lived. Yeah, so Snape had huge barriers to overcome, <laughs> both out of poverty and hopelessness, but also he didn't learn the lessons that childhood is supposed to teach you. At least see, this is we're getting into my head here, trying to make sense of the bits that we were given. And that was something, bef- even before we learned that, the people who loved Snape often wrote stories to highlight what a jerk he was. <laughs> and how, you know, how is that, was, that was central to his personality. And yet, in spite of that, he because he was intense, this is, this is one of my personal buzzwords or my, my keywords, more is, is a better word for it, for what Snape represents to me and especially the Snape-Harry connection is... It is so intense. Whenever they're on the page together, I mean, Snape tends to make things happen. He is an engine for drama happening on the page, but especially when Harry is on the page. The intensity and therefore the chemistry, even though it's hostile chemistry, is really fascinating. And some of that has to do with the fact that, especially at the time, until the last book, there was this underlying enigmatic... Moral struggle going on in Snit because we could see that he was doing good things. He was saving Harry. He clearly knew things that we didn't know yet. <laughs> and then we start getting the, the, the little bits about the fact that he'd been a death eater, but then he has the whole reveal to fudge about he shows his arm. I mean, oh my God, why did he do that? <laughs> that was a very courageous and possibly stupid thing to do. But there's all these pieces of Snape floating around, but the heart of him is he was bitter and clearly self-loathing. I mean, all the stuff about his greasiness and his ugliness, and he just, he comes into the room, and one, he's being very dramatic, he's billowing, but also he's just radiating repressed emotion a lot of the time. And actually, for me, that's another sort of keyword or keynote for me is, to me, Snape seems like a very, very repressed person.
0: Uh, yeah, I was just thinking that word myself as you were saying that. <laughs> so repressed.
1: It's in there. It, yeah, yeah. Which makes it really interesting when he just loses his shit. <laughs> right. It comes out <laughs> yeah. explosive. <laughs> yeah. But there's always a sense of There's something seething under the surface. And that's a very appealing quality if you happen to be, you know, <laughs> built that way, if you're interested in that sort of thing. And, oh my God, I have, I have written so many paragraphs about Snape. I have, I, I copied and pasted all this meta, <laughs> so, but I didn't get a chance. I didn't have enough time to look at it to say, what did I say about Snape in the past? But...
0: <laughs> well, it's no wonder though, because he remains one of the most complicated fictional characters that I've ever encountered. Yes. Right? I'm involved in a lot of different fandoms, a yes. lot of different genres. And to this day, he is probably the most complicated person that I've ever had the pleasure <laughs> of yeah. exploring yeah. through fan fiction. So it, it doesn't surprise me at all that there's just so many things to say.
1: There is, if you don't mind, I, I did not write this. I asked to borrow this. There's a lot of other things I, I could say about Snape, but I don't want to you know, belabor it. <laughs> because I can go on and on, and I have in the past. Circling back around, because this is a big point of contention in Snape lovers versus Snape haters, is because of the whole Lily reveal and the tendency to interpret that as, you know, Snape just wanted to get in her pants. (laughs) That was the only reason. And And that he's obsessive about her, which is a complete misreading. It's, it's like their reading comprehension is really extremely poor. But I'm just going to read this because I'm not going to try to <laughs> rephrase it. My brain is too fried. I said, uh, you know, then there's love. Snape doesn't know how to yet. Love he does. He loves and grieves in a way that's obviously unhealthy and obsessive, deep and soul-sucking. He keeps himself going after Lily's death primarily by means of anger and servitude the bitterness that eats at him, his desire to defeat Voldemort. He agrees to protect Harry only as a form of self-punishment that he suffers pretty ungraciously. And however twisted the altruism, Snape yearns to atone. And killing himself would in some ways have been easier. But living until Voldemort rises again affords him vengeance, even if it means that Dumbledore more or less becomes his second master. And that by choosing to live, he gets the chance we don't see the the glimpses of it until the very end, the chance to grow up and to learn that other people matter and that yes, he will do whatever he can to save them. So there is that sort of countercurrent in Snape that actually is still developing throughout the series, even though he is just stewing in his bitterness and his grief and his guilt. And those two things are, it's like the well I'm always going back to for stories, but the, kind of conclusive words I wanted. These were not written by me. This is a writer, Snagov, also known as Confessor. And they wrote, I've always liked him dirt poor and rubbed raw and dark minded. More and more though, I see him as a maelstrom of fucked up everything and self-hatred and self-punishment with a severely gray and flexible moral compass. And I like that. It's fascinating. I don't want him beautiful and given a redemption arc. Nothing in life is so clear. I want him absolutely fucking shattered and sparking like a live wire against the ground. And that quality in Snape, which I can't always put my finger on, is also something that I love about him and I don't want to lose it. <laughs> I don't want fandom to explain it away or mellow him out to the point that you can't see that anymore. So, yeah. Yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> we can oh, be going till midnight. I love that. <laughs>
0: I love that though. I love that. You know, I feel like for me, and then I'll shut up about Severus Snape, <laughs> but, but for me, I wanted him dark and yes. I wanted him gritty and I wanted him bitter and angry because I'm not going to sit here and say that I was ever as bad as Snape was, right? But there was always an element of what I saw in myself reflected back to me in the Snape character. Yeah. And there was something in the darkness that I just was so drawn to. Yeah. Yeah. And it was important to see that in the fan fiction. To me, it was important because yes, nothing is so clear cut. The world is shades of gray. Right? People are shades of gray. (laughs) And it made me feel more human to see that reflected back to me in that character in such a true honest raw way you know yes that yes. did something for me and, and every time I see it pop up in a fan fiction it just that feeling just washes over me you know it's all so over
1: satisfying
0: again. <laughs> it is <laughs> to, to be able to recognize that yes that to recognize that, you know. that and in context to feel connected and be like okay it's not just me, yeah. <laughs> right? because sometimes when you're in that darkness internally in yourself, you think, "Oh my God, this is so unacceptable!" Like you know, there are certain parts of ourselves that we think
1: are so unacceptable
0: that we yes. have to hide away.
1: And most of us don't enact it; don't let it creep into our behavior. Snape is like right out there. <laughs> <laughs> he just lets the flag fly and doesn't give
0: two fucks.
1: He, which no, is great. he doesn't. Which is and. One of the things that I find amazing is if he could control his reaction to Harry, his anger and his loathing, it would make life so much easier for him if he could fake it. Because, for example, that scene on the hillside when he comes to Dumbledore with his defection from the Death Eaters and he comes to beg Dumbledore to save Lily. And Dumbledore is so disgusted by him because he doesn't care if Voldemort kills Harry and James. (laughs) He's totally baffled by why should anybody care about that? And he had the smarts. He knew, or he should have known, that he should not come to Dumbledore and said, oh yeah, let those guys die. (laughs) If he'd had any sense at all of, like, one, not being killed on the spot, or saving his butt by not sounding like a complete psycho, or being convincing at all, he would have faked having some concern for all of them. But Snape never fakes his hatred. He does not ever hide it, even when it makes Dumbledore, you know, reject him or be disgusted with him. And he is, I would say, foolishly honest about that. Hiding it or toning it down would have actually been the smarter thing to do. And he never does.
0: No, he doesn't. He is so authentic. Yes, In the way that he conducts himself. And it's refreshing for so many people. And
1: yet he's a spy. (laughs) (laughs) So there we've got another contradiction going on there. (laughs) Right.
0: Right. Well, no, that just, you know, adds to the pod of delicious um, contextual complexity that is Severus Snape. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we mentioned that your White Road fan fiction was written back in the golden era. I have seen, actually, many people reference this particular fiction as a must-read classic, which I would agree with, of course. <laughs> Thank you. But for the folks who have never read this yet, I was wondering if you could briefly describe what the story is about, so that as we go into it, we have a little bit of context with the themes that you've explored here and what we were trying to say here
1: with this piece. Well, the story started, in my mind, with this conceit. The canon hints at Afterlife being an actual, literal, condition, phase, space, whatever you want to call it. And so I took that, decided we're writing partly about the afterlife. And, you know, it's the dead are all hanging out together (laughs) in limbo, but it's a serene limbo of landscape and all the rest of that. But that isn't this conceit. The conceit is that I started the story with Dumbledore giving Lily a golden sphere, a gadget that's Equivalent to a remote control to a magical TV. And what the telly shows her is not fictional, it's real. It's what's happening in the real world. And so she becomes audience to the lives of people she knew intimately, people especially who mattered to her in her lifetime. So she watches scenes from her own past at first and she figures out how to tune in and watch what's happening with Harry. While he's going through, you know, the canon timeline. But and this is actually I think a little difficult for some people who start the story. It begins with her stumbling upon a vision of the future where she glimpses Harry having sex with, of all people, Severus Snape. And needless to say, she's horrified. And sometimes so are some of my readers. (laughs) But (laughs) and you know, she goes through all the emotions, she's enraged, she wants to punch Snape in the nose. But this is what propels the story and propels her, launches her into this exploration of all these unresolved and painful feelings for this friend who betrayed her and who inadvertently or not brought about her death. So Lily is the viewpoint character for the entire story, and she interacts with the canon story and the snarry relationship, the Snape-Harry love story, through this magical TV. And she becomes addicted, almost, actually, uh, a voyeur to Harry's life. And then she starts revisiting through the TV. She revisits scenes from her own past with Severus back in the days when they were friends. And so the emotions start getting more and more complicated, and they start to travel away from her initial instinctive revulsion when she first sees Snape again on the television. And so she becomes as you do when you're watching a story unfold on television she gets really emotionally invested in the outcome and not just because it's harry and not just for his survival but because of she can glimpse the future and so what kind of future he's going to have and with whom so that's the basis for the story as somebody else put it you know lily becomes a scenario shipper (laughs) Which was actually what I was thinking, but, <laughs> <Yes. right. laughs> but it made me laugh. <laughs> oh,
0: I love that description because it is true. And yes. that's hilarious. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about the name that you chose for this fiction, The White Road, which is a line from T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. I love The Wasteland, by the way. I oh. love T.S. Eliot. <laughs> So the fact that you used T.S. Eliot for the title of your story and also you included parts of The Wasteland as the epigraph, I believe it was the section from What the Thunder Said. Yes. Absolutely gorgeous. So I was wondering why you chose to name this particular piece after T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. And what does the epigraph that you included in the fic, how does that relate to the story's thematic elements here?
1: Well, do you have the epigraph in front of you? I
0: do have the epigraph in front of me. Let me pull it up here. Yeah. Did you want me to read that?
1: Yeah, if you wouldn't mind, if you could read that, just because I don't know how many people will, if it will make sense what I say next without hearing the, the lines. Or it will make, I know it will make more sense if they do know the lines.
0: Absolutely. Let's do that. Again, this is from T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, specifically from the section titled What the Thunder Said. And it goes like this. Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead, up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you. But who is that on the other side of you?
1: Well, I hope when people hear those lines, they'll have the reaction that I did, which is I find them very haunting. And I didn't choose them for the purpose that Elliot used them for in the poem. I, just looked at them and they connected with the story I wanted to tell. So I stole them for them to be sort of the guiding sentiment. Like if I needed to check back in. He took that sentiment from someone else. Yes. Uh, as I understand it anyway. <laughs> yes. So someone he took it from someone actually lived. And, and you <laughs>
0: took it from him. So that's totally fine
1: here. But yes. <laughs> and he'll never me. know. So, <laughs> <laughs> And the irony is that I started out writing a crackfic based on the idea of Lily and the Magical TV, because it was written as a gift fic in Snary Holidays. And my recipient wrote and loved, you know, humor and crack fic and absurdity. And so I thought that's what I was going to do. And yet I had those lines from the very beginning. So needless to say, (laughs) it didn't stay funny or absurd for very long. It became kind of a conduit. For my feelings about the end of the series, there's a lot. I mean, when you read the story, you'll see all these pieces that are in dialogue with the last book and what we found out in the last book and about what the power of love, you know, one of the themes, supposed themes of the HP books, what that meant, what compassion and sacrifice meant. So for the lines themselves, there's a melancholy and also for me, an ethereal quality. Kind of echoes of some unspecified past. You could also flip it, and it sort of hints of an unknown and elusive future. But I also just like that hovering sense of there's someone always with you, or between you, or guiding you. Possibly not real. Possibly a ghost or a dream. Which kind of you can turn this this trio around. It it seems most obviously relating to Lily at first, being actually dead and yet watching and having this relationship. To both her son and her former friend who brought about her death. (laughs) So there's a ghostliness in which she's a part of their lives at all times. And she's also the known and admissible love that Snape had that he lost, and that through the way he lost her, there is no way he would ever deserve her love in return. But with Harry, Harry's not a love object he would ever admit to except under extreme duress and dire circumstances. (laughs) So Harry's the kind of the potential. And then, you know, you have, because roads in fairy tales and and various rites of passage, they can also be seen as the journey into death or through death and back out into the world. And so, yeah, it's a two-way street. It can be from death back to the living. It is actually... A theme that I work with more than once. I'm writing a story that is also you could also use that and say, Yeah, that's what this story is about. Even though in a more removed way, it's also kind of a commentary that readers might pick up on afterwards that this is a triangle, this disturbing erotic geometry caused by Snape falling in love with mother and then with the son, <laughs> which obviously much of the fandom found really creepy. And then we also then have the mother being a party to a ghostly sort of party to an invisible party and voyeur of the relationship and this relationship that violates most people's ideas of propriety. And in all of this tangle, there's a lot of incestuous subtext that sort of just vibrates between them or amongst them. I mean, the way Lily spies on Harry and Snape, sexual encounters. It's right. not it's not really subtext anymore at that point, right? <laughs> <It's> kinda, <laughs> <vroom>. <laughs> it suddenly rose to the surface. Right, exactly. <laughs> but really though, I mean, even despite that, really Lily's focus is on the mystery to her of Harry's desire for Snape, which baffles and alarms her and you know, disturbs her and all that. And then gradually, the whole question of whether or not Snape deserves him, which is never made explicit in the story, but is kind of what is going on in her as she watches, as, as things progress. And so through this act of voyeurism, she sees how they embrace and yearn for and protect each other. And that's what eventually convinces her. It's a form of salvation. So yeah, that's what those lines are doing there. <laughs>
0: Oh, and I love that. I love that. Because, you know, when you describe those lines as haunting, that's the exact same emotion that I felt when I first read them right before I dived into the story for the first time. And, you know, T.S. Eliot does that to me all the time anyway. But those lines in particular have always been some of my favorite from that particular work because they are so haunting. It's so interesting when you dive into the third man syndrome that -hmm. he was trying to evoke there. If anyone out there wants to know what the third band syndrome (laughs) is, you can Google that. But I thought that it really was so apropos for this work because, you know, I love what you said about the relationship between Lily and Severus and Harry, but there are also some interesting references later on in your story to some sort of third, I don't know what I want to call it, entity, that we'll talk about later. (laughs) yes. I was curious about that. Speaking of Lily, I was so fascinated by the fact that you chose to write the entire story for the most part through Lily's perspective because maybe I'm just not as well read as I could be in the Harry Potter fandom, but I have not read a whole lot of stories that are Snape-centric from Lily's point of view. So this was kind of the first time that I ever saw something like that. And I was also fascinated by the way that Lily is the one that evolves the most here, which I loved. I absolutely loved. I was wondering what made you want to flesh her out specifically and focus on her point of view.
1: Part of that was directly in response to the last book, where Lily's prominence shifted from being, you know, the sainted mother who was responsible for Harry's survival and the special protection that required him to return to the Dursleys every summer, but that somehow elevated her sacrifice to being more important than other people's sacrifices, which always bothered me. The role that she was assigned to play never fleshed her out, never made her feel like a true character to me. And there was a little bit too much of the good mother stereotype. She was a little bit um caricaturish. Yeah, she was she was underwritten and a bit of a prop for explaining, you know, certain things in the book. And also and of course then the emotional pull of a mother who sacrifices herself for her child. And I was really happy when we got the prince's tale in the last book. I was happy about that for a lot of reasons. I loved the information we got from the prince's tale, but part of why I <laughs> loved it was because we see Lily acting like a girl with a temper. Pretty much most of the scenes in which she appears in the prince's tale, with the memories that Harry watches that Snape bled out as he died, Lily is getting mad at Snape. <laughs> Lily and Severus are having a, a disagreement about something, or he's just done something that made her mad. And it's not a harmonious friendship, and she's not a good little girl who is all sweetness and light. They definitely had disagreements and dis- misunderstandings and Severus was always getting himself in trouble with her and that spark worked for me that made sense to me because she was clearly from the scenes we see she was clearly the dominant person in that friendship she had much more power in that friendship than Snape did which was fine he was an inarticulate and weird little boy but it hadn't come across until that moment or until that that section and it also Helped give a little bit more of a grounding to the fact that Lily seemed to be attracted to and even enjoyed pursuing or hanging out with arseholes, James and Severus. Sure, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Yeah, There there actually are (laughs) quite some similarities there, aren't there? (laughs) Yes, and we know that James was became a good man, but that all happened off page. We didn't see that. We see him being, you know, an absolute prat and a bully. So. And we know what Severus was capable of. So, yeah. And Lily gravitated to both of them. So, what does that say about her? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And then, some of it was also after the Lily reveal. Snarry fandom was kind of well, Snape's death and the Lily reveal. I should not forget he died. I do often forget he died because he. I always write him as alive. But the way that wave of emotion and revelation crashed into snarry fandom meant it scattered people all over the place and they weren't quite sure how to deal with it and what to feel about it and i was one of those people i, I was very disappointed i did not want snape's motives to be boiled down to this i thought it was a cliche and disappointing compared to what it, how much more complex it could have been and what the promise and weirdness of snape's the question of snape's change of loyalties how that could have played out but that's what we got so that we also you know it it colored snape's bitterness his you know it helped explain why he was faithful to a job he obviously hated and stayed in a school where he had experienced the deepest humiliations where his you know his worst memories they lead back to the school And he was under Dumbledore's oversight. And this is somebody who had pronounced him disgusting. And by the way, something I think is not quite mentioned enough, which is Dumbledore failed his promise to keep Lily safe. And at that point, all bets should have been off. Snape didn't owe Dumbledore anything because this whole, he had actually, you know, he'd risked his life coming to Dumbledore with his information and Dumbledore botched it. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, he, you can't, he can't really be held responsible because he tried. They didn't know that Pettigrew was was a mole, and so it turned out the way it did. So anyway, so we've, we've got this explanation for why Snape stayed in this miserable job in which he just hated his life, and he hated everybody, and he hated himself. <laughs> so I wanted to see if, as a snary shipper, I could write a story in which Lily got to be the judge and jury of how this had all fallen out, taking also into account, you know, Snape's years of trying to atone in his own Snape-like way, which it doesn't require that he be good or nice or a decent teacher. (laughs) It's, you know, he doesn't feel that he needs, although, you know, in some ways he was... Still an effective teacher, not for everybody, but one could question his teaching methods. (laughs) You could, you could. You could. So it's
0: so interesting that even in the quote unquote good things that he does, he does it in such a dastardly way that it's just.
1: mm. It's like his only real pleasure in life was to make everybody else, you know, suffer. If he didn't (laughs) like somebody, he felt absolutely, he felt he had the right. To unload bile all over them and humiliate them and make them just as miserable as he was. <laughs> right, right,
0: right. Well, you know, some might call that delightful. I- <laughs> I- <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> I know. The-, the temptation is there. It is. though. <laughs> but I
0: love how you describe this journey that you take us on with Lily as sort of her being judge and jury here. Because, uh, you know, when the story starts out, she's horrified, right? Yes. By what she's seeing on the <laughs> screen between Snape and Harry. And there's all that hatred mixed in with grief, you know? It's very complicated. This is very complicated for her, you know?
1: Yes, yes. She hasn't thought about this in a long time. Right, right. It's still so tender for her.
0: And right. so at first, she's just so angry and horrified by it. But that's why I said that I think she's the one that evolves the most here, because she goes from that to her opinions and her feelings start to shift and change yeah. the more that she starts peeking in on the little scenes between her right. son and yeah. Snape.
1: Well, I also took the opportunity to at least glance back at their lives as teenagers in Cookworth. I wanted to show that. I was so and I still am so fascinated by Snape growing up in this industrial town as a very neglected child. But even though Lily was probably in a different part of the neighborhood that was a little more upscale, you know, they shared this neighborhood. So I I enjoyed writing the past, which is something when she revisits it, she sees it differently as we all do when we think back on ourselves as teenagers. And then I also, on top of that, because kind of with my, by using the afterlife, I was kind of borrowing and maybe I'm projecting this myself, but I often feel like the afterlife, without being heaven, it literally heaven, it's still a place where the no longer living who are now you know able to presumably look back or look down or wherever they are. There are concepts associated with the afterlife of like reconciliation, the benevolence that can come from being positioned to see a larger picture. And then also the the pity and sympathy that those already dead can feel for the, the difficulties the living are still enduring. And I wanted that to play a little bit of a part as Lily watches what they go through. And also, of course, and on occasion feels the overwhelming wish that she could intervene. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad that you said that because, you know, I think
0: that some of my favorite parts of the entire story are the parts where she's able to look back. On the moments that she had as a child with Severus and see those instances and those moments with brand new eyes and a brand new perspective. Because suddenly she's not just seeing it from her perspective, but she's able to see it from his too. And the level of understanding that she's suddenly faced with, being able to see his face, his reaction to what she's saying and doing. It just blows the lid off of what she thought she knew.
1: Oh yeah. That's that sounds like that's referencing the canal. The scene mm-hmm. at the canal. That was one of my favorite parts to write. I really <sighs> love writing that.
0: <laughs> it was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. The whole story is beautiful. But that, oh, you, know, you know, that part especially just it was so heartbreaking. Like I can't even <laughs> I can't even like express how like, hauntingly heartbreaking that was to me. But It also kind of reflected a lot of the same things that I believe about the afterlife. That, yes, the word that you use, that reconciliation or that fresh new understanding of things we thought we knew. Right. And suddenly we can see them again with new eyes. The opportunity for you to do that was there and you took it and ran with it. (laughs) Absolutely wonderful. Thank you. I was curious about the playground because you start the fic on the playground and you close the fic on the playground. The the playground felt symbolic to me. Was it symbolic? Oh, what is that?
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay, this is going to be a little bit of a longer answer cuz I actually wrote this one out. <laughs> because yes, the play it had to be the playground. Absolutely. I am one of those writers who I'm a pantser as we're now called. Ah, yes. I don't work from an outline. I don't write out what the entire plot is going to be. I usually have destinations, like little islands of imagery, little places of significance that I'm heading towards when I'm writing, but I don't map out the whole story. And I hardly ever, I'm very bad about this. I don't work in chapters where I know, you know, this chapter is going to achieve this and then we end it and we move on to the next. I don't write like that. (laughs) And I'll, you know, I'll jump ahead and I'll write out of order sometimes because those destinations are just like lit up and and glowing and I want to write them and I don't want to lose that. The vividness of them, so I'll go to them first. So I had about five or six of those kinds of beacons for this particular story that I knew that they had to happen in the story, and the playground is one of them because it starts there in the afterlife with with Lily sitting there, because that is where the whole thing with with Severus and Lily starts. It's where they met, you know. If they hadn't, imagine the history would have been completely different. It's the start of their story. Also, it's a place that represents friendship, beginnings, you know, all that stuff. Innocence, hope for the future, playfulness. It's where Severus encounters his first and, you know, you could argue his only real friend. And he also, this is not something that, you know, is is canon, but it struck me at a certain point that He risks openly declaring himself a wizard. And they're about nine years old in that scene, I think. Pretty sure. This is a turning point. This is a neglected, probably bookwormish, obviously pretty feral child. And he's recognized someone like himself, someone his own age. And I'm sure he's defying his mother's warnings. And I'm sure his father threatened him to not do this, to never speak about magic, never perform it anywhere outside the walls of Spinner's End. You know, don't let the muggle neighbor see it, hide it when he's out in public. So that is significant. All of that is happening there. It's also where we see Lily take flight from the swings. And that hooks up to and helped inspire some of the imagery that I use throughout the story. The lightness and joy, the sense of discovery, the danger. Okay, this is where I worked. It took me a while to get to this one, but I worked my way to it. The danger of it, if it's not instinctive the way it is for Lily, if you don't know how to fly, and, you know, we find out later in the series that Snape does know, but from the way it's described by the other characters, I think most people I've encountered, most readers, figure that he learned it from the Dark Lord, who's the other character we know who can fly. My headcanon, I prefer to think that Lily showed him how to do that. I prefer that he learned how to fly from her. And I've used that in a couple of my other stories, too, because I'm stubborn about things like that. So flying is something that Snape associates all his life with Lily. And, you know, and flights, it's an emblem of freedom. It's even freer than riding a broom when you're a wizard because it's just you in the sky. But as a metaphor, in this case of love, if you're emotionally crippled or afraid, and as Snape is, I think, in the realm of love, we never hear him say that word ever. So, even of admitting love, you know, how do you learn? Also, if your initial attempts, your fledgling attempts at flight, in this case, at love, ended in the kind of destruction and grief that Snapes did, and it's forever after chained by guilt to this horrible, dark period in his life and the terrible consequences of his choices, and if all your flights after that are Tied to the knowledge of your own inescapable ugliness and you're surrounded by the Dark Lord's version of flight, how would he be able to hold on to that promise of the love that he felt for that he The books, I think, I'm not even quite sure. I think he had a he was infatuated with Lily from the moment he laid eyes on her. He clearly reacts to her, this magical child, with an intensity that is not typical. So all of that came into play. Well, I kind of knew what the last scene was going to be and I knew it was, you know, we're going to go back to the playground. And because that's a place where Snape and Lily they can meet. It's the place where nothing horrible had happened yet. This is what something they have in common as children when they still were discovering that they were a witch and a wizard and it was exciting and so it seemed like for their story Where it began is where my story about them needed to end, because when Snape leaves, it's not exactly the ending yet. But the scene where they meet, Snape and Lily meet, and then Snape leaves the playground, he's going to Harry. And so that is the end of the Snape and Lily possibility. It's done. She's let him go, basically. She's actually shoved him out (laughs) into the world. (laughs) Right, right. There's that (laughs) ultimate closure there. Yes, yeah. One other thing that I don't, I don't actually harp on, but the playground scene in canon as a personality or character note about Snape, it's also the first real glimpse of Snape that we get or of Severus as, as a child. He's spying. He's an outsider watching because he doesn't know how to play. And he's clearly rehearsed, you know, the moment he's going to reveal himself to Lily. And then he botches it because (laughs) he doesn't know how to do it. He's, you know, an extremely poor child from a totally different class background. And, you know, he ruins it. So that, and spying becomes one of the recurring roles of his life. But yeah, that's, so Playground is, I think, really important. And it's the place also where Snape and Lily in the story have the, I suppose you could call it the showdown between them. Yes, the talk. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, (laughs) The clearing of the end. And they do it in the presence of the baby, who's there, you know, as the audience for their reunion, and who is also of a reminder of what drove them apart. We'll deal with the baby later. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yes. I have questions (laughs) about that baby. uh...
1: So, yeah. So and and then I wanted this and then I ended the story in the playground with a, a, a different spin on it. But Lily's there and she's she's happy. So, yeah. It's the bookends to their whole story. Yes, yes.
0: No, I loved that. I loved how it started and ended at the playground, especially what you see her do after she has that showdown, right? That showdown with Severus Snape. And like you said, she kind of pushes him out (laughs) and pushes him towards Harry because she knows that's what needs to happen. And it seems like such a weight was lifted off of her after that was done. You know, yeah, and I love that that final imagery is of her finally being able to just feel free at the playground.
1: Well, and that she she flies. Yeah, she flies
0: because that weight is gone. Right. The symbolic imagery of that was just I loved it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> like, oh my god! <laughs> all that work paid off. <laughs> so cool. Yeah, it was beautiful. Well, it's I, it's one of the things that I think I love about the story is that it, so many things felt symbolic and. My little nerd brain, you know, like I just,
1: I just love that shit. It's so great. I do too. That's why I think I, I tend to flog it to death in my stories. You know. <laughs> no, Once it's again, perfect. That's what fan fiction is
0: for. You exactly. It's stuff. self-indulgently like symbolic, <laughs> all over the place. Now, here's where my left brain analytical part was having a little bit of trouble with. I was not quite sure what was going on. With baby Tom Riddle, because in this story, there is a baby Tom Riddle. Dumbledore shows up, shows up to Lily while she's watching Voyeur TV. And it's like, hey, Lily, like, I have baby Tom Riddle here and I need you to babysit him for a little bit. (laughs) And I loved that baby Tom was in there. And there are so many parts where it feels like something very poignant is happening (laughs) with Lily and baby Tom. At one point, I think Dumbledore tells her, baby Tom is, is Harry, right?
1: Yeah, is a part of Harry, yeah.
0: Yeah, like a part of Harry. I didn't quite know what was meant by that. I'm a little dense here when it comes to the baby Tom part, but I feel like it is significant. So I was wondering if you could help me understand oh, no, no, no. <laughs> the significance here of baby Tom and how is he a part of Harry? And what does this all mean for Lily? Because it seems very significant at several parts in the story. There may be a little bit of a rant in coming here, <laughs>
1: just to warn you. <laughs> yes, bring it on. Let's hear it. <laughs> okay. I hated, absolutely hated the implications of the baby in King's Cross Station after Harry dies and meets Dumbledore in the sort of antechamber to the afterlife. And, you know, they have their whole conversation. And there is this baby stashed under a chair, under a seat, with open sores and, you know, flayed skin and crying and screaming. And I really had an instant recoil that at that point in the narrative, the message that we got was, you know, of this child, of this baby Tom is something that is beyond either of our help, is what Dumbledore says to Harry. The subject of that sentence is a badly injured, suffering child. And that, that whatever JKR set up for the significance of that distracted me throughout the whole rest of this pivotal scene, which also had other issues, but we will just skip lightly over those. And it made me think with, you know, because he, he says two things to Harry. He says, you can't, um, it cannot be helped or you cannot help. And then it's, you know, it's beyond either of our help. Beyond saving, yeah. And at the this narrative point, I, it was like a slap in the face i hated that after death there is still suffering and that lack of compassion is still acceptable and it was right on the eve of harry's transcendence you know he's about to return to life and he's going to triumph you know this long and blameless journey he's been carrying a burden of of responsibility without really knowing what it is he's carrying cuz nobody will tell him and then the, it seemed like that was all called into question by the sudden late arrival of this very mixed message. And the baby, I assumed, and I might be wrong here, this is my reaction to it, was it's a horcrux. It's, it's the piece of Voldemort that stays behind when Harry returns to the land of the living. And why is it beyond saving? Why not just say, don't worry, Harry, it's not your responsibility now, which would leave open the possibility that the baby will be cared for. And so that was like all roiling around (laughs) inside of me as I was writing the story. But also then with the Horcrux being so much a part of Harry, he's been living with it for about, he lived, I think, 16 years, because he was, what, a year and a half, I think, when when his parents died. So it was a part of Harry. And for me, in my author brain, it made sense for Lily, to kind of stand in for Harry in deciding whether or not this really repulsive little suffering creature should be punished or blamed because we're back to what does Im- imagery represent? Babies represent innocence. A baby is not responsible for what happened to them. And if the baby is, we're off into sort of weird, murky moral territory. There's also the whole, I don't, I don't know if I handle this quite right but i wanted that these echoes are hints of lily's been deprived of her son harry was a year and a half when she died so what was it like for her to hold a baby in her arms again even though this baby is a piece she's told she knows it's a piece of the you know the monster who killed her and thereby separated her from harry took him away and so she has really every right to refuse him mercy very much like with snape you know, she has no reason to forgive him. But so then I wanted in the course of the story for her feelings as her feelings about Snape change, I sort of tried to mirror that she starts treating baby Tom more and more like a real baby. She's less disgusted by his you know, his appearance, his sores. She's more sort of casually affectionate and a little bit maternal, and she's treating him as a human baby and not like, you know, this vile, diseased lump from a dark lord, but from her, you know, her worst enemy. And then I wanted Tom to show, I wanted the baby to, to respond to that and become more like a child who knows love. So all of those things were involved. If I'm wrong about the baby representing the Horcrux, I don't know what it's supposed to represent. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I wouldn't know either. I wouldn't know either. And I oh, I love the way that you explained that because the only thing that I could really see in there was just her evolution with baby Tom there. Because you're right; like at first, she's kind of like repulsed by this baby, like oh my god, you know, oh, you he's want me to what? in
1: the books is really, really awful. Yeah, it just yeah, he's is, he's is so disease ridden and scabby, and you know. Dumbledore basically just plops him in Lily's arms. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I feel a little bit like, I don't really want to hold this.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. And, you know, she could have just well have put him aside and been like, I am not dealing with this. But I love that she made the choice because there had to be a conscious choice there at some point for her to say, okay, I don't like this. This is disgusting, but (laughs) I'm making a choice here. And she does make a choice. Right. Right. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. That choice is to, have some compassion and see where it goes
1: from there. There is one other thing. (laughs) Once I decided the baby had to be in there, actually I didn't decide it. It was just in there. It just like wedged its way into the story. But once the baby was there, I really looked forward to writing a scene where Lily makes Snape hold the baby. (laughs) (laughs) I loved writing that scene. (laughs) Because I could so imagine how, speaking of disgust, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Snape was just forced to swallow his absolute. I am. Don't make me do this. And he carries this baby down to the playground. Right,
0: right. Well, it's just it's <laughs> funny in so many different ways because, like, had it been just a normal, regular baby, I still feel like Snape would not have wanted to hold that baby. Oh, like yeah. no matter what kind of baby it was, but the fact that it was like diseased Tom Riddle,
1: right, um, that just right. makes it worse. <laughs> like, well, it's awful. See. I I loved writing the part where you know everybody's like, oh yeah, Snape th- that's sticking it to Snape, Lily. Go <laughs> go you. <laughs> <laughs> but then once he realizes who this is, and it the I shifted the tone because it's it's absolutely devastating to him. You know, because even if he's not quite sure what she means by it, Lily forcing him to hold the representation. The, essentially, I start using time the baby as a metaphor here. <laughs> <laughs> he's snape is holding the this the metaphor of all of his wrongdoing of, of the tragedy that he brought about and so through the, their whole conversation once they're down in the playground tom is there he's like the physical embodiment of their whole tragedy yeah she makes him own it Yes, she does. That's exactly what she does. I love that. And
0: that is one of the things I just loved about how you handled this is Lily doesn't gloss over it and say, oh, I forgive you. And it's okay for all of the dastardly things that you did. You know, like she doesn't go there. She is pretty harsh about it (laughs) in some some respects, you know, and well, as she should be. Right. (laughs) She does
1: make him own it. It's just so honest. The way I framed it for myself, and I, you know, if I wandered off into sentimentality, I tried to use this to keep myself on track, was that she shows Severus mercy, but not forgiveness. And that doesn't change by the end. She does not have to forgive him. But what she does for him is very merciful. And yeah, that was the note for the culmination of their relationship that I was trying to maneuver the story towards. And yeah, it happened there on the playground. I think Lily was capable of that by then. I don't, you know, she, she needed to go through, you know, watching what happened in the land of the living. And she was only 21 when she died, right? Yes, so yes, she, she, was she was so She was very young. young. So, yes. Yeah. yeah, so I had Lily do some, some growing of her own throughout the story, especially because she needed to, because by the time Severus arrives, He's not really somebody she knows. No.
0: And she says that, I think. Yeah. She says that, that this is not the same person.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. He's grown and changed. and He's older than she
1: is at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely.
0: <laughs> so. He's had all that time to kind of buckle under the pressure a little bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I want to go back yes. to, to some of that here at a, at a later point. I did have a little bit of a space here to kind of talk about, you know, several questions ago, we were talking about T.S. Eliot and about the third person in, you know, the Wasteland poem epigraph that you include. And I talked about how there seems to be some sort of entity in your story that makes an appearance a few times, which I was absolutely fascinated with, (laughs) right? Like entities just, I don't know, they tickle me for some reason. And so you're, you're making this like allusion to this. It's almost like some sort of winged, angelic entity that seems to appear at certain parts of the story. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. What is this yeah. imagery here? What does this mean? It was absolutely beautiful.
1: Thank you. That was an interesting dilemma for me, actually, in the writing of the story that I fussed around with for a while before just sort of giving in to what I needed to do. Because when I wrote this story in a month and a half, which is absolutely unbelievable for me because I usually take years to write a story. A month and (laughs) a half. No way. Yeah. So I was like under incredible pressure to get through this. And I ran into the problem that even now I don't think I would have solved it, except in the same, same way of how to describe certain emotional states or states of being, kinds of speechless connections fitting, I think I used this phrase, something like this, the fitting together of two damaged halves into an ecstatic whole. And do that without resorting to spiritual vocabulary. Well, I couldn't. <laughs> I needed, I couldn't find another way to describe that using words that came with so much, you know, tradition's long significance and meaning and depth. So I ended up just embracing these familiar and sort of spiritually laden terms in order to talk about something that was very, what's the word? It's tangible in that it's recognizable to Lily, but it has no actual physical existence. And yet it's, you can, or she can perceive it. And I wanted a way to convey like the almost supernatural force of the emotional intensity between Snape and Harry, I wanted it to have like power and danger as well as the sense of mutual completion and it's something Lily sees between them happen between them that shocks her and she feels like it's inexplicable and it and it is almost something like that is like a manifestation. Harry and Snape are not at all aware of this, but she, that's what she sees on her screen and. I don't actually put this into words, but it is potentially something that she sees it that way because she's in the afterlife. She recognizes something that that has a, a kind of supernatural force. I wanted the like the awe from the unearthly kind of beauty that comes of in this instance, I guess, a transformation like of their past and of Snape's guilt and their resistance to each other and Snape being given a second chance and. And also, you know, the fairly mundane altered perception that comes when like personal chemistry and sexual longing can transform even an ugly bastard like Snape into someone beautiful because you love them. But at the same time, working with this intensity, I also wanted that Lily could see in it the judgment of the transcendent, like the knowledge that something's possessing you. Let's take Snape. He's possessed by something that could destroy him, that could command his sacrifice that has the power to leave him absolutely devastated after he's fought it and fought it until he has no choice but to surrender, which is kind of my view of how Snape would react to falling in love with Harry is he would fight like hell to not give in. He was fighting against something larger than himself, I mean the love was there, but as hard as he fought, he was going to have to. Submit. And so it's like the awe that is not just of seeing something sublime, but of seeing something that can absolutely demolish you, obliterate you. And you hunger for it and you rip your heart out to deny it because you want it too much. And it's something you refuse to let yourself have because it requires you to submit until it brings you to your knees. And then, which poor Snape, I do that to him a lot. <laughs> My story is he, he often ends up on his knees.
0: <laughs> I'm not complaining. Carry on but with I was, the knees. I was yes. well.
1: I was here.
0: <laughs> well, you know, the way that you put that entity, for lack of a better word, in there, it did feel like this transcendent moment of detonation when yeah. that thing appears This happens in the story the moment that he finally surrenders to it and stops fighting. And it's like the energy of that sacred moment, right? Mm -hmm. Like it just coalesces to this beautiful, it's almost as if she's watching something supernatural happening.
1: Yeah. And I had a long time ago, I read a description of, I think it was about Dionysus and what it would be like to have a God single you out and make love to you, because, you know, that's Greek myths are full of that. And that what we consider sex or lovemaking is not how it feels when a God makes love to you. It's like being destroyed by a burst of transcendent light and energy, something that is sublime and ecstatic and can kill you. (laughs) Because it's so much more... Like human beings are not meant to sustain that. And so I wanted that sense of potential obliteration as well as of ecstasy. Well, ecstatic states in Greek mythology often mean that they end up tearing each other apart. That wasn't actually (laughs) supposed to be be in there.
0: (laughs) Oh, but I love that, though. That idea of just obliteration, almost an out-of-body experience that's so intense.
1: Yeah, I ended up using words like angel and sin and falling and, and sublimity. I think. Also, when you're talking about flight, you're going to end up with wings <laughs> being mentioned. Yes, <laughs> yes. The so. wings
0: on this entity reminded me so much of the flight analogy, the flight metaphor that you use several times for Lily. Yeah. And I think that I want to say that it was used for Snape as well in the description of him falling in love.
1: Yeah, there was actually there's a line in there that directly basically says that it's in in the act of falling that the angel is forced to open its wings. Yes, yes,
0: which kind of brings it back to what you were saying earlier, that his first time trying to learn love, right? Yeah. Ended so disastrously. Yeah, yeah. How could you possibly expect him to do that again? And yet he does.
1: Right, because Harry won't let him <laughs> avoid right. it. Right. Harry is very, right. We haven't mentioned Harry much here, but Harry is very stubborn. Yes, <laughs> is one the, of the persistence. About him. Oh,
0: the persistence <laughs> is my favorite, yes. you know, which is just, you know, I felt like it was really in character, honestly,
1: for him, right? Yeah, he would just forge ahead and not give up, and, and you know, knowing he's right, Glimpsing what's going on inside Snape and being a much more honest character than, in some ways than Snape is in terms of not being afraid to go after what he wants. Right. Well, he still has that youthful exuberance, let's say,
0: and he doesn't have the same baggage. Right. right. He does not. That Snape does because he's just not old enough to have it yet.
1: <laughs> so Well, and he never in the books he never did anything except I mean, the closest he came was Sectum Sempra that he threw at Draco, but he never was responsible personally for destroying somebody else's life. People probably blamed him for it, how long it took for him to defeat Voldemort, but that's not up to him. That wasn't right. his fault. Yes, precisely. So yeah. he just doesn't have the same
0: hangups that Snape has. So the two of them, if anybody is going to be able to move things forward, it would have had to be him. Yes, I don't think Severus was ever going to do it on his end.
1: Oh no, he he went and found himself a you know a cottage out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, he literally <laughs> ran away. Yeah, was like I'm just going to fuck off now. Yep. Yeah, and he did. So, but you know, that just goes to show you, you know, Harry's persistence because he goes all the way to Scotland, right? All the way to this remote location to yeah. harass Severus Snape. <laughs> which I just love. I love that. With
1: no hint that he's going to receive any sort of welcome. No. You know, he's The Hutzpah of that. Yes. The Hutzpah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, he just ups and goes and does it and backs Snape into a corner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, quite literally. Which he shouldn't be able to do, except that he's Harry Potter. And you never know what Harry's going to be capable of.
0: (laughs) One of the other things that I appreciate about the story, and I I feel like I've said this a couple of times in, in various ways, but I appreciate so much the way that you hold space in this story for all of the characters and their experiences you hold space for their emotional states and perspectives without a ton of judgment. You just let them have the space to feel and experience and have their own perspectives. You know, we mentioned the truth, right? Telling the truth about Severus Snape, which you absolutely do. You allow him to be bitter and mean and distressful and paranoid <laughs> here. You know, all of the things that we think make him like this horrible person, yes. <laughs> but, but at the same time, you also give him space to show some emotional vulnerability. I'm specifically thinking about that scene in the hospital.
1: Uh-huh, yeah. That was one of those beacon moments that I knew yes. had to be in the, in the story. Oh, yeah. when he holds his own hand. Yeah, when Harry's
0: not there. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, oh, that's just... Oh my God. You know, it did. (laughs) It was just so you know, he doesn't say a word, right? He doesn't say a word, but just that act of like, oh my God, you know? And even Lily, I think, is struck by that when she sees that and is like, Oh my God. So I was wondering what were your favorite vulnerable Snake moments in here? Because that's not the only one. There are several of them here and they're all gorgeous. Oh
1: my. Let me think. Yeah, that is definitely one of them. There's a, also a brief moment in Snape's cottage after they've struggled all over the living room and Snape <laughs> finally invites Harry into his bedroom. And then they struggle all over the bed. <laughs> but they're having a little bit more fun in the bed. And I think it's because, I'm trying to remember, I think that, there, that Harry was trying to get Snape's clothes off. And he pins him down by leaning on his hair and I, I think starts kissing his body or something. I can't exactly remember what I had him doing. But the point of that was Snape just kind of, is stunned. He is, I wrote that as the moment a very touch-deprived person is having this cherishing and care lavished upon him. And he doesn't know what to do. That glimpse of he doesn't fight back. All Harry has to do to win this particular fight is just care for Snape. So there's that moment, because touch deprivation is one of the tropes that I really love, even though I don't think I've written it much. Another one is when Snape and Lily are in their little hideaway in the reeds alongside the canal, and they have this little game of forfeit, and because Lily got to their hideaway first, she gets to call forfeit on Snape, and she wants him to unbutton his shirt. And Snape is at this point, you know, a gangly, repressed, easily embarrassed teenage boy. And he's not at all happy about this. (laughs) But he does it because it's Lily. And she takes a moment and just looks, you know, looks at him. And that moment where he is just lying there, letting her do whatever she's going to do, I have Lily, who's watching on the TV set, recognize she could have done anything to him at that moment and he would have let her. And that that was something that she didn't understand at the time and what that meant. It was a very hard scene to write, to get that right. And I hope I got that right. Readers tend to mention that one, so I think I did. I wanted to show the poignance of this horrible boy, you know, this character that we've been taught to think of as he was dark from the beginning and he was nasty and unhygienic and enjoyed... Inflicting misery on others and to just not see him through that lens at all, and just look at this kid who has not had a great life at all and will continue to have an even worse one. And it mattered to me to show a side of Snape that most people wouldn't associate with him, which is precisely vulnerability and youth, and not even, not I'm trying to think. What? How I, I, I don't even know how I would describe it, which is why I probably retreated into so much imagery <laughs> in this scene. I can absolutely see
0: why that scene is mentioned quite often. I just thought it was so unbelievably beautiful that for the first time, Lily is seeing this scene from an adult perspective, right? Yeah. And she says something about how it was the first time that she had ever seen him happy. And she didn't know that at the time. Right. Right. But she's looking at it again from an adult perspective. And she realizes and recognizes that look on his face that this is the first time she's ever seen him happy. And she's lamenting that she didn't know that. Right. At the time she missed it. Right. As it was happening. Yes. And it just. Oh, my God. That bruised my heart for days. After I've read that for the first time, I mean, in, in the best way possible.
1: I mean, oh that good, I, think possible I, did, I bruised myself a little bit when I was because oh. I see I see Snape as incredibly lonely character. Yes, not lonely in the overt way. It's not like he's aware of being lonely. He doesn't mope around feeling, oh, I'm so alone. It's just he's so isolated. He never is given except you know except for maybe that little period of being best friends with Lily. People don't do nice things for Snape, and of course he repels attention a lot. He keeps people away, but he just, Dumbledore doesn't give a shit about him. No, (laughs) It's just his parents apparently didn't either. There's just that sense of, and his death is just so lonely. It is. It is heartbreaking in the books we don't ever get a mention, nobody went back for his body. You know, once right. he's dead, he's just left there in the Shrieking Shack. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just, yeah. And I wanted some of that quality of that uh, essential loneliness in that child, which you can see in children, I think more easily than you can see in adults.
0: Oh my gosh. Yes. And, and then just juxtaposed with us being able to see those fleeting moments of happiness
1: yeah yeah the
0: only times that he was ever really happy were those you know small moments with lily before everything went to shit. right exactly which just complicates all of it i'm sure for him emotionally but you know one of the things that i love to do when i find a story that i particularly love i do love haunting the comment section just (laughs) to see the things that people write um, A lot of times the author will go in there, right, and they'll give, you know, more insight and information about what they meant by certain scenes or cert- certain lines or whatever. So I went in there and you had beautiful comments in there and beautiful responses to comments. And one of those responses you mentioned wanting to give Snape and Harry's story a redemptive, transcendent, you called it stubborn sort of beauty.
1: Yeah. Which I
0: thought was just... What a gorgeous sentiment, right? Because we've gone on and on in this interview about, you know, the ugly reality of Snape, right? Right, The ugly reality. But the idea that we can still make something beautiful out of something so ugly. Yeah. I'm so drawn to that. So drawn. So I was just wondering (laughs) if you could expound on that idea just a little bit about wanting to put some sort of stubborn sort of beauty in their story.
1: Well, I think that's one of the things I was, especially after the books ended, the series ended, I was very preoccupied by. I love all the hostility and the sparks that fly from their antagonism and all the stories that were written about how they find their way to each other, either by way of having to work together or one of my, my well, I'll, I'll tell you later, but I have a favorite story that is just Snape being absolutely unforgivable and awful. For a good reason, but it's a morally horrible reason (laughs) at the same time. All of those are wonderful stories. But I also felt that with the two of them, there's so many ways in which they either are similar, Snape and Harry, that they share things, or they complement each other. They're the flip side of each other. And with that sense of Snape was so, he had such a hard uphill road even if he hadn't been responsible for these horrible things. He was so poor. He was so ugly. He had the most popular kids in the school hated him on sight. He ended up in the house that Dumbledore associated with his own past transgressions, I think. And no matter what anybody says, I think it's clear Dumbledore favored his Gryffindors. No doubt. (laughs) I will agree with that sentiment 100%. (laughs) hard to argue he didn't <laughs> but no matter what his life was always going to be a struggle he was always going to have to prove himself and he was brilliant and talented and a duelist, and he could fly and he was an occlumens and a Legilimens, and there was obviously this thing in him he could he still had a patronus which i think you can also say is a sign of He was still somebody worth redeeming. Whatever you may think of J.K.R.'s ideas about, well, Death Eaters can't cast Patroni. And so it's just like this story of preventable waste of a life. If somebody had just given a good goddamn about Snape at some point in his life, that they could have steered him off of this path. And the other part of that, or the other good part uh, to cherish about Snape, is no matter how creepy fandom thinks he is about this, he was capable of unbelievable devotion from, you know, somebody who didn't really know. I mean, nobody had ever really loved Snape. You, you know, they talk about Lily, but they met when they were nine years old. Their friendship ended when they were, what, 15? That's childhood friendship, but it's not quite the same thing as as somebody loving you. And so Snape never knew that. So it's not actually really surprising that his ability to love was a little bit deformed, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's stunted just a wee bit. But he was capable of it in whatever, you know, condition and it ran very, very deep to the point of self-sacrifice. And there is something very beautiful about that. Yes.
0: It was the only way he knew how to love.
1: Yeah, it actually was. And it, the object of it wasn't even there anymore. He had to carry this and sustain this in himself when he could have run away. (laughs) He could have decided, I don't want to die. (laughs) Right. I don't want to go do these horrible things and, you know, suffer torture under the Dark Lord. And while in the meantime, everybody thinks that I'm a traitor and they all hate me. And then also eventually, oh, by the way, I have to kill Dumbledore, which means the entire wizarding world is now going to, Hate me for the rest of time, and no, he could have run away. He didn't, which is remarkable. And I don't think there is anybody else in the order who would have agreed to what Dumbledore asked of Snape. I don't think anybody else would have been able to say, "Yeah, I'll kill you (laughs) for the greater good," (laughs) (laughs) right? Knowing what that meant and knowing what
0: the consequences of that would have been.
1: So there is something in Snape that. And once it also leads back again, once again, to intensity. He is so fucking intense. And you put that together with Harry, who is capable of remaining remarkably innocent and good through all kinds of travails and experiences, not least with the Dursleys, who are awful human beings. And you would think that Harry would have been permanently affected by having to live with them for so many, so many years. And yet at the same time, I don't believe the epilogue. I don't believe Harry's going to come out of this unscathed. So, I have a tendency to write Harry as damaged by what he went through, and, you know, we already know that Snape is damaged several times over by the things that he went through. And you take these two people, Snape wants to love, Harry has, you know, Harry wants to be loved because he had his parents taken away from him by <clears throat> or because Snape gave their, you know, targeted them by giving the prophecy to to Voldemort. So the irony is, you know, getting the love that you want from the person who was responsible for taking away your entire childhood. And oh, by the way, then also making it awful once you arrived in school. (laughs) It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a very twisted up sort of, Configuration between Uh, them—a little awkward, but (laughs) a little, just a little. You know, especially (laughs) because Snape's not going to talk about it. (laughs) But yes, there are so many things there that are connected. And Harry has a a saving people thing, and you know, Snape is like the epitome of somebody who really needs to be saved (laughs) because he clearly gave up. You know, long ago, his atonement is is essentially use me up until I, you know, until there's nothing left. So I wanted to take these two lost boys of Hogwarts and by putting them together, by allowing them to meet through whatever surge of need or, and it's, you know, it could be because I often write them as dysfunctional, but this unhealthy hunger for each other that as a matter of fact, turns out to be better for them to be together than if they were apart. And I think you can make beauty out of that because you can make Snape happy in his own strange, dark way. And you can give Harry somebody who will cleave to him for as long as Harry will let him. (laughs) And I like that about them. I like that they will probably always have terrible fights, but they are so deep in each other's histories that they can understand each other in a way that nobody else can. And so by focusing on that and on what they can give each other and how, in fact, it can transform them. Because even Harry, who I think would, I would imagine, need an awful lot of healing. Yes, after the absolutely. <laughs> and yet, what does he do? He goes off and he joins the Aurors? I think that's a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Probably not great for healing
1: trauma. So what I wanted, especially I think at that period in time, what I wanted was to bring them together in a way that, it's funny, it's hard for me to say, to put this into a direct statement as opposed to a story. (laughs) I hadn't thought about this before, but that's why I write the stories, because I need all those layers, because I need to lead myself as well as them, as well as the reader, through the the various steps of the the kind of love that can embrace somebody's flaws and continue to love them and i think that it's the reward i would want to give them and the fact that once you set them on that path they are both incredibly stubborn people in their separate ways but that their dedication to each other once basically once snape gives in once snape surrenders would be what they would need To survive having been, you know, the hero of and the anti-hero of the wizarding world. Because I can't imagine their lives ever being normal, you know, or ordinary after the war. Harry will always be the hero. He'll always be separate from the rest of the community. And Snape is going to be ostracized.
0: There's just something so beautiful about that thought, which you said just a few minutes ago about embracing the flaws. Right. Yeah. And choosing love anyway, because isn't that what we do? Isn't that what's real? We do that all the time.
1: We do do that all the time. (laughs) And people will accept the flaws when they there's something that's more important. What that person has to give them is more important than the the flaws that they end up having to live with. And I can certainly see that being acceptable to Harry, especially because Harry's a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. (laughs) Right. So Snape right. will give him reason to, <laughs> yeah, use that adrenaline a lot. <laughs> yeah,
0: there is absolutely a lot of yin and yang yeah. happening there in that dynamic. Which you know, I agree with you on the uh, the sentiment that it, I think it would have been very difficult for either of them to have normal relationships with anybody else. Right. Yeah. They've just seen too much. They've been through too much. They have too much history that I'm not sure that they could have found what they needed anywhere else.
1: Yeah, or they they could. J.K.R. thinks that with Ginny that, that Harry could, but Harry's not ordinary anymore. He starts out as an ordinary boy, and he's, by the end of the war, yeah, I understand the desire to give him a family, which is what he yearns for, and maybe he should have. Maybe he does deserve that. But I also can see something in Harry, and I kind of write it this way in The, in the White Road, that there's something in him that is always left unfulfilled. There's a hunger in him. And it's not just that, you know, he's gay or he's bi. It's that Harry is also a lonely character. Some of the things that I remember from the books is when he goes off and he, you know, he sits in the window ledge and is just by himself. He doesn't talk about his feelings very much. But there I think that the the loneliness of those two people would call to each other. Amongst other things.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Just the idea of all of it, I think. Yeah. It's just yeah. so gorgeous. It's,
1: it's, there's a lot there to work with, which is, of course, is why I like to write about them. Yes.
0: <laughs> no, there is so much to work with. And I think that on so many levels, I think that's why this story works. Because, of course, you have the complex levels of what the story is about. About and the themes that you are bringing in and all of these metaphorical imagery that you're pulling in, like layer on layer on layer, it's just so beautiful. And then not only that, but then the actual way that you wrote the story. And when I say that, I'm talking about the words that you're using to string these sentences together. <laughs> <laughs> it's just unbelievably poetic oh, and you. hauntingly beautiful. I loved it the first time and this uh, last time that I reread it, I pulled out all of these gorgeous lines and I'm not going to read them all because I pulled out way too many. (laughs) But I did want to read maybe two of them. I think we have time for two. And then I was hoping that if you remember any of your favorite lines from this work, feel free to let us know what those are. But I think the first line that struck me, I think this line is more towards the beginning Lily is watching the you know the television <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know and having a very visceral reaction to that and the line goes the depth of her grief stuns her she's forgotten how horrible it feels bent on converting this awful feeling to a cold hard sense that justice has been done she rocks her misery like a baby ah! <laughs>
1: that's so good oh good that oh. Was very intentional <laughs>
0: Oh, my God. So good. And then, oh, this part here. I'm not going to describe what's happening in this scene, but I think that people can infer. But um, I believe that this is a scene where Lily is watching Snape and Harry together. On the television and realizing what they're doing together. She's <laughs> horrified, absolutely <laughs> horrified. But there's this description of what she's seen on the screen. And it goes long, unsunned back, ribs nudging through shallow stretches of muscle like sandbars around the indented river of his spine. Ah, uh, for some reason, like that description was just gorgeous. Gorgeous. The way that it rolls off my tongue. I'm a very. What's the word I'm looking for? Kinetic reader? Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. I a lot of times as I'm reading, I'll come across lines or paragraphs that are so friggin' beautiful that I have to repeat them out loud.
1: Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. So
0: I can feel the words spilling out of my mouth and curling around my tongue. And I did that so many times oh. with your story because the words and the way that they felt coming out were just so beautiful. I was wondering
1: if you have any favorite lines from this work. Oh, that is harder to answer, actually. Um, Also, I wanted to say about the second quote that you read out loud. That was a risk because what I wanted to do with that, and I didn't do it too much else throughout the story, was mimic that impression when you see something and you don't quite realize what it is you're seeing. And it just hits you with visual impression. So Lily's not like telling herself what she's seeing; She's just getting like, boom, in the face this reaction to Snape's physical being, the, to, to the sight of his back. And so those lines were meant to stir the sense that she was getting just by seeing this without it necessarily being how she thought of it. I'm not sure I pulled that off, but that was it wasn't meant to be an actual thought. It was meant to be like a in-the-solar-plexus sensation. <laughs> yeah, well, I believe that it did come off that way because
0: if I recall in this scene, it's rather dark, right, yes, when it comes yeah. on to the television. She's not even sure at first what she's looking at, right? Yeah. It's dark. <laughs> and so she's trying to make out what it is. And this is the best visceral, in-your-face reaction, I think, that comes through as she's trying to make out what right. she thinks yeah. is happening <laughs> there on the murky <laughs> screen. And then the horror sets in, like, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> right? but but then she goes back for more. <laughs> <laughs> but the way that the words just string together and they were so beautiful. Oh,
1: thank you. Oh my
0: God. And there are more like that. There, you know, they're all over this fic. Like I said, I could sit here for the next, you know, three hours. Oh, and just... I enjoy just yeah, just
1: <laughs> running wild with the imagery. I, it's one of my favorite things to do, but I'm trying to learn to to be a little bit more sparse and not quite so dependent on imagery. I'm not sure I'm succeeding, but, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yes. I wasn't sure if you had any that you wanted to pull. If you don't, we can absolutely move on to the next one. Well, the one, ones but, um... that
1: tend to stay with me, they're not lines. They are scenes. So it's more, I think as the writer, what I retain is that sense of this sequence, the way it moves to its final musical note is the sort of thing that can still give me the shiver of, I did it! Yes. <laughs> yes! And the one that I, just off the top of my head, that I can remember is, apart from the the scene of Snape holding his own hand, right towards the end, when Lily makes her decision, basically, she's watching after Snape has gotten out of Azkaban. At this point, Lily realizes that Snape and Harry have been together in this reality For 20 years, like Harry's 40 in his 40s and Snape's in his 60s. And Snape and Harry are having a conversation while they're sitting in the rocking chair. And they have the conversation in which you find out what the White Road means and why I titled it that. And the whole conversation that goes through to the point where Snape says, so I came back and Lily says she's seen enough and she clicks off the TV is still one of my favorite parts of the whole thick. Like, I feel like I did what I wanted to do there. So it's not the beauty of the lines. It's the gracefulness of the scene coming together and with that emotional sort of quiet click where it's whole and it's complete. So, yeah, that's as close as I can come because I... Off the top of my head, I never remember what. What did I write? I I love that that's (laughs) one of your favorite scenes, though,
0: because it is such an emotionally culminating scene. Yes. You know, it just brings it all together. And it's so tender.
1: Yes, I wanted the tenderness. Yes,
0: yes. And that absolutely came through.
1: Yes. In the nature of a confession, the way that Snape tells Harry what was going on then, because this is now, you know, far, far back. In their history, although from Lily's side of things, it hasn't happened yet. And, yeah, just that sense of, here's something that Harry never knew, and he hears Snape say it out loud. And that's basically where we leave them. Right. Oh, I can see. Absolutely see why that's your favorite. (laughs) 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 Now,
0: I wanted to go back into your comment section one more time, because while I was digging around in there, I found this really beautiful exchange that you had with one of your commenters, and I wanted to talk about it here for a few minutes, just because this is a common sentiment that I see among fan fiction writers. This commenter said that, of course, they loved your story and, and all of that, but the reader ended up saying something to the effect of, Writing as beautiful as yours makes me feel discouraged from trying to write something myself because I feel like I can never measure up to what you've done here, right? Yeah. And you responded to this reader with a beautiful, graceful, kind response. And I was hoping that you could reiterate what you said because there are a lot of writers that feel that way. I see that sentiment all over the internet amongst fan fiction writers that they see someone who in their eyes is just the god of fan fiction writing and and they feel like I'll never measure up to that. So I'm just not going to, I'm not going to try, right? Yeah. It paralyzes some people from writing.
1: I will preface this with, I have certainly felt that way myself. (laughs) I think this is a common experience, like you said, amongst writers, and not just fan fiction writers, but I think the writing personality in general is prone to that. To fall in love with somebody else's work and see in them things that they feel they will never be capable of, and just this looking up to and creating an unattainable state that means if you can't ever touch that, if you can't be as good as that, then it's not worth doing. And I've fallen into that trap myself of just being so blown away by somebody's work and feeling that as hard as I try and as much as I want to be able to do certain things, I will never be able to acquire that particular skill or that what they just did, what they just accomplished in a, in that scene is so amazing and multi-layered and perfectly in character and witty and the dialogue is sparkling and also not a word is out of place. And it will all just be my reason for reading will be contained in that story. And that's the corollary to it, which is this absolute gratitude that these authors exist. <laughs> it's like, like I said earlier in this interview, that what brought me into fandom was the desire to tell people what I thought about their stories, how much I loved them and how grateful I was because we're getting this for free. I'm running around reading all this amazing, I mean, staying up, you know, half the night and just feeling the emotional highs that writers can put you through. And I think that everybody can do that they may not do it the way that other author over there does it, but they're going to write a story that's going to affect somebody else that way. I think sometimes the irony or the unfairness of being a writer is that you may never be able to experience your writing the way somebody else does. So you can never know how someone else is going to react to it, really, or how it will reach them, or how they'll carry it around, or how they'll never forget it. And many people will never tell you either. But that there are so many writers who are doing those very things, at whatever skill level too, and whatever kind of story or which characters they or ships they're attached to, they're doing that for their other readers. And not to mention, just setting aside all the writers who want to be able to do what all the other writers are doing, the readers out there who will never write are also being affected by the story you may write. And they will never f- experience that if you don't write it. <laughs> you know, that's like somebody may be losing out from the fact that you didn't write this story that could have expressed your love for your fandom, your characters, and people who would struggle with, say, my story and just find it too overwritten and not their version of Snape and blah, 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 whatever it is, and it would just not be their cup of tea could find your story and just be enraptured by it. So I don't think anybody should ever deny themselves the opportunity to write, partly because people have different stories they want to tell. I will never tell the story that 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 commenter, whatever story they wanted to tell, it's not going to occur to me. They need to write it themselves. And the other part is I whine and complain a lot about the act of writing. Once again, I think that's a part of the writer personality. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) I think there's a vein of neurosis that runs through a lot of us that comes out when we're writing. It may not be visible in the rest of our lives, but you sit us down and make us write, and suddenly we're twisting ourselves up in knots and plunging into depressions, and you know, complaining about how our story is fighting back against us. And so there's a lot of you know noise in general letting off steam, venting. But the actual experience of writing is not like anything else. To enter into that, you know, to have those moments when you are so bound up with creating the characters or filling out the world or finding exactly the right word. It is ridiculous how much pleasure you can get out of finally laying your hand on finally the right word. (laughs) one freaking word yes <laughs> and
0: <laughs> it's almost euphoria when that happens it is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that experience is something you can only get by writing and it is also like i think a lot of crafts and hobbies and arts that the more that you write the deeper you go into it the more you realize that there's there's yet more to know you never ever stop learning and changing and Finding other stories and realizing, hey, actually, you have now acquired the skills to do this other thing that, you know, when you were younger, you would never have been capable of. And the submergence in that state of writing, which you are in another world and it's yours, <laughs> can be not only, you know, all the things that the deeply satisfying and the escapism, but it has a little bit of a what you can read about when anthropologists describe sacred experiences amongst peoples, this altered reality, you're so deep inside of something, and it is all that matters at that moment. And you can see it and feel it. And it's why I think a lot of pe- writers are drawn to doing that, because it is an expression of something so personal and innate that once you give it expression, it really is like you're touching something that is outside of yourself or beyond yourself. And here we go with me and my uh, having problems with not using spiritual words for describing certain states. But even if you don't get that far and you're just having a great time fussing with words, it is worth doing. And you're never going to get it if you deny yourself that experience. So yeah, I am all for people getting in there and writing their own stories. The thing you have to remember is you cannot expect that you're always going to have an audience or that the audience is always going to give you what you need. But that is an entirely separate thing from writing. And you can get amazing moments of glee and triumph. And and also put yourself through all the emotional experiences of your characters and make yourself melancholy and make yourself fall in love and make yourself get to project yourself into a genuine arsehole who is just reveling in the fact that you can tear somebody down verbally when you know you would, you know, you would stand there with your tongue hanging out, not being able to remember until, you know, later, well, 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 you know? <laughs> you big poopy head, you know, that sort of thing would, yeah. But you can write down those wonderful, scathing, elegant sentences. <laughs> so there's so much, that writing is besides being beautiful also you know it's it, there's so many sides to it i am so in favor of the platform that fan fiction gives people to just dive in because the stories never ever end there are always more stories always even when i feel like okay i am totally burnt out i'm wrong <laughs> <laughs> There's always another. It's like, oh my God, I just thought of, oh, here comes another idea. Uh oh, <laughs> jot down a note. Uh oh, it's starting to grow arms and legs. And yeah. So, yeah, I think nobody should ever tear themselves down for not being able to do what somebody else does. It belongs to you. And once you've shared it with other people, you will often find that other people carry that with them after they've read your story.
0: So, you know, let them. Oh, it's like you're reading my mind when you just said that. Because as you were talking, I come at this very much from a reader's perspective. And I am constantly trying to express what it's like from the reader's side to help writers understand how much it matters. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that's my exact profound experience with literature of all kinds, but fan fiction as well. Everything that I've ever read becomes a part of me. It's with me from that moment on to the day that I die and probably beyond, right? Right. And how powerful is that? That you created something that is now a part of me and always will be. I will carry that forward for you (laughs) forever now. And it's just, oh, I could go on and on and on about how beautiful that is.
1: I, yeah, as a lifelong reader, I absolutely know what you're talking about. It is, it's amazing. I cannot imagine what my life would have been like without reading.
0: Yes, I absolutely feel like I would be a very different person today if yeah. I didn't have the experience of reading because there are just so many experiences and perspectives and thoughts that will never occur to me if I don't right. get to yeah. read them somewhere, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> and they oh. become
0: a part of who you are.
1: Yeah, stories definitely shape us. Yes. And they don't have to be works of great literature to do that. No, they don't.
0: They don't. If they made you feel something, they made you think about something.
1: Or if they made you laugh. Yes. You know? Yes. I, I, I'm so envious of people who are witty and have a sense of humor. It's it, it's a gift. Yeah.
0: Yes. Oh, absolutely. Now, last but not least. If you have any other writers or fan fictions that you love that you'd like to shout out on the podcast, real quick, please feel free. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: oh, yes. I do indeed. The problem will be limiting it. Let me see. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think at the top of my recommendations list, and somebody I have an enormous fanish crush on and if you hear this, I apologize for saying that publicly, (laughs) is Delphi, who is probably my favorite author that I have found in fandom, writes a lot of Harry Potter, but is also multi fanish So they've written stories that I read, even though I didn't know the source material. And like one of my favorite stories of theirs is TF2, Team Fortress, Team Fortress 2. And it's a short relatively short story and I don't know the characters and it is amazing. <laughs> it's so amazing. And if I were in my bookmarks list in AO3 I'd be able to tell you what the title is but I didn't note it down. But Delphi writes Snape centric fics a lot. They're a writer's writer and very attuned more than I think any other author I've come across to prose style just an amazing ear for perfect word choices and natural rhythms and characters. And Delphi writes the most fascinating Snape I have ever come across. And of course, we can say it's because Delphi must share my view of Snape, but it's beyond that because they pull things out of Snape's background and character. And they have insight into the kind of person Snape is that I would never have thought of. And yet, make Snape very human in a way that I think is hard for most of us because it's really easy to exaggerate Snape because it's, you know, dramatic and interesting and he's written a bit as a a bit of a caricature. And Delphi is able to take that raw material and make a very human character who's recognizably Snape. And I love that. (laughs) They also write... Some of the hottest sex scenes that are not exaggerated the way we usually exaggerate fanish sex. It becomes the repository for all these intense explosions of sensation and meaning between the characters. But Delphi brings that back down to a, a more recognizable, ordinary level. And yet, without hyperbole, they are still breathtakingly erotic and they are just packed with character it is this character and nobody else so that is in fandom I think quite an accomplishment to be able to write sex scenes that are just redolent of that individual character so yeah they're just superlative and one of the other things about their work is they write Snape with a full awareness of his moral handicaps But also his class background. Delphi is really good at never forgetting the class background, the position Snape came out of, the neighborhood, the upbringing. So you get this remarkable combination of this really sharp, suspicious intellect and this just abject social ignorance. Oh, So,
0: Oh, so they really lean into that. That sounds so fascinating.
1: Delphi is just so good. Their usual Snape ships. They used to be a big Snape Dumbledore shipper and then shifted over to Snape Filch and then Snape Aberforth. They actually wrote a story for me in the very last of the HP Beholder Fest rounds, which is one of the most beautiful pieces of writing I have ever read. It is just more than I could ever... I mean, this was a gift to me and I feel like I got something that can never be topped as a, you know, as a fictional present to me. And it was a pinch hit. (laughs) My original writer dropped out and Delphi had to step in. And it is just mind boggling to me that under pressure, they were the mod running the fest that this is what they wrote. And it is just gorgeous and very quietly heartbreaking. It's called, I'm going to mispronounce this. I should have looked up the pronunciation of this. A Grammary of Folk Magic. It's Snape right after he comes to work for Dumbledore, before he's actually started teaching. And that year, which encompasses when the potters are killed. So it's basically one year that Snape kind of comes and goes at the inn. And so, you know, he's very young. And Aberforth is in his 90s. So you have to be okay with a really large age gap. <laughs> That's another thing. Delphi writes age gap, cross-gen, which is also sort of my wheelhouse as, as well. So I have written a lot about Delphi and we will never run out of things to say. But I will move on to a snarry author. <laughs> and because we've been talking about Snape Harry, so I should do this. One of the more recent authors is Snagov. I have not actually asked how that's pronounced. Also known as Confessor. And they've written fics titled Goblin Market, The Forest King, The Lighthouse Keeper. And if you like poetic and lyrical and mythical style, you should read this author's work. They are unbelievable in having such a deeply poetic sense of use of language and of drawing in mythology, and, and folklore bits, and references, and resonance. The quote that I gave you earlier, when we were talking about Snape, and ended that section where I read out a quote, that was from them. That sounds beautiful. Their work is just beautiful. And it, it's kind of like this burnt match kind of quality of the fierceness and intensity between Snape and Harry, and the that the ways that Confessor finds to describe Snape's internal landscape and the kind of impasse between him and Harry and how Harry gets through that, <laughs> or doesn't, is just, there is nothing like their work in fandom. They are a, a very unique writer, and I hope they go on to write many more. They're also in several other fandoms, but they fortunately do keep coming back to Snary. They did tell me that lately their Probably due to influence from the outside world, that their view of Snary has gotten a lot darker and without the fragile happy endings, the potentials for happy endings, but much more sort of internally destructive to both of them. But yeah, I would recommend both of them. There are other authors, Acid, also known as Acid Burn, who used to write with Cynic, has been a long term Snary author and artist. He has grown from story to story to story, and each time just seems to get better and better. Writes beautiful works. And also, you should check out Acid's art. He is extremely accomplished artist and has always been from the very beginning, but has been, you know, pursuing digital art and learning how to use things that I can't even begin to talk about because I'm not an artist. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, and then there's older works like That one of the first stories that I ever found was In Between Days by Atrata. Oh, I love that one. That is like one of the what would you call it? An er snary story. One of the snary stories from the primordial times that set my perception of what they could be. It was like just it was one of those stories that I fell upon when I first entered fandom. And not only did I consume it, it consumed me. And it has always Influenced how I see Snape. Yeah, it felt like a very foundational piece. Yes. I think
0: for a lot of us. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There are just so many authors. <laughs> I can go on and on. Swerving a little bit to one side, because I'm also an aficionado of sort of the old lady smut brigade who will focus on the older female characters, especially around Minerva. And Kelly Chambliss is one of those authors that you should definitely read everything of hers is worth reading and yeah she has written so much and it is she creates a world sometimes actually she writes snape quite often actually writes snape minerva but she also writes a lot of femslash and it creates this picture of minerva that i think has become my canon minerva and she could easily be published (laughs) that's as far as i'm concerned then there is i'm gonna recommend two One is Snape Girl Harry that is at this point unfinished. The first part of the series was like half a million words long. And it starts when Harriet is in, I don't remember, a second year. Anyway, it's called The NeverEnding Road by Leventadorn, who is, again, an amazing writer. <laughs> and all of these people should someday be published if they want to be. Because they just—they are so overflowing with everything you need as a writer. And this story is complex and gorgeously written. And the Snape is to die for. The version of Snape is to die for. And Harriet is a wonderful character. And the slow evolution, which I think again, this—you get into these territories where some of fandom gets creeped out by the fact that they start having feelings for each other while Harry is still in school. This doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> it's like, that's the point, the dynamics between them, whatever it leads to. And it, you know, these dark, heart-rending, disturbing stories, that is the point of them. It's not that they should be written a different way because it's not acceptable. It's, they wouldn't be so intense and heartfelt and complex and disturbing and all the many things that you're going to feel throughout a story like this if we made Harry 25 years old. You're just, that's a different relationship right there. Oh, I love how you put that. That's perfect. And then one last one, and then I'll shut up. This one is a Snape Lily, and it's a tragedy. <laughs> Big surprise. <laughs> <laughs> like, what else is this relationship? Right. <laughs> it's called Puzzle by We Built the Shadows Here. And it's the story of what if. James and Harry had died and Snape had saved Lily and the fact that Lily is going to make sure that she reverses that outcome. The way that um, We Built the Shadows Here writes Snape just leaves a a mark on your soul. He is so dark and so stunted and so hungry and devoted and possessive and fucked up (laughs) And Lily is so sharp and single-minded and clever and crafty, and yet, you know, the emotions between them, there is a very twisted sort of love in there, but it is powerful and wonderful and dark and will give you all the feelings, and it is tragic. (laughs) It sounds like it, but oh my god. So, that sounds amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing. Oh, one last. <laughs> Speaking of dark, I have to um, give a shout out. Although I think this one is locked to AO3. And this also is Het. It's funny. I'm not. It, there are so many more scenario authors I should be focusing on. But this is like just pulling things out of my brain at the moment. It, it's called Playing for Keeps by Vissy, who was a scenery shipper, but wrote... Wait for it. A fic about Eileen and Severus. Oh! And it's short and it's packed full of absolutely believable set piece, spinners and what Eileen is like, who Eileen is, what is the mystery behind what, you know, how Eileen and Toby ended up together. This is Severus towards the end of his school days, coming home kind of one last time to hang out with his mom over the holidays, and completely accidentally setting in motion another piece of a tragedy that would go a long way to explaining why he is so damaged, permanently damaged. This story knows exactly what it's doing, and it's so short, and it packs so much in there, and... Teenage Severus is an absolutely recognizable teenage boy. And the relationship between him and his mom is, you know, it's a gift to be able to get this window in on on them and see them as as this part of this family. And then the ending is just devastating. Oh, my. (laughs) 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 And yeah, Eileen is both this but sympathetic and also a bit of a monster in a very, very ordinary recognizable way but in a way that can only be done in harry potter in the magical world right right there i'll i'll shut up now oh
0: those all sound so perfect and beautiful i can't wait to dive into them because there's a lot of titles in there that i don't recognize so i obviously have some work to do
1: here (laughs) yeah i kind of i've I've wandered far afield. i think just because those were at the top of my brain because there's all these other snary authors like Rinsbane, who is one of my beloved writers. I will always love her work. And, oh lordy, Jay Triffenstone wrote some wonderful snare work. And if you like more romantic snare, you should try Pluperfect Sunrise, Hippocrates 460. Oh, there's also one I'm going to throw out here, Reconciling Lily's Eyes by Persepolis 130, which is on Walking the Plank, which is one of the old Snary archives, it is a Snape Harry, unlike any others. (laughs) Because...
0: (laughs) That one sounds
1: familiar to me. I think I must have read that one. Harry is out of character. Harry is a bit of a ditz, and a neurotic ditz. And Snape is an absolute... He he is the epitome of what an ugly Snape would be. He is one of the most repellent (laughs) Snapes ever written in a Snary story. The sex is just grotesque and hot and you can't believe you're reading it. (laughs) (laughs) And it deals with the whole, he hates James. He isn't over Lily. What are these two doing together? (laughs) Snape is a mess. And it's also this deadpan humor that runs all the way through. And there are a lot of people who cannot handle this story because they can't handle a Snape who is so ugly.
0: (laughs) Right. Just too (laughs) grotesque. It's too much.
1: (laughs) But it pulls off by the end, it pulls off this very poignant moment, and you're rooting for them by the end to be together. And I love this story. (laughs) I don't, I've read it so many times. I don't know how the author did this. (laughs) But I also, I just revel in a Snape who is a basket case. And Persepolis 130 gives you that, so. That's perfect. (laughs) Absolutely perfect. I love
0: it. It's so funny because with Snary, you could just go on and on and on because the fandom is so old at this point and so many things have been written. As many fixes I've read, there are so many oh, that I haven't. So. I,
1: yeah, I haven't <laughs> even mentioned some of my absolute favorites, like Rapture by Mia Ugly and the Bittersweet Potion series by Alchemia and Bugland.
0: I remember reading a bunch of old school ones by Mary. Yeah. There's that one that I can never pronounce the name of this author. Is it Tirok Norg? Tyra, Tyra oh, Tyrannog. Nog. Yeah. Yeah. Tyrannog, Tyrannog. yeah. Oh, oh. Yes. I will always go back to that author's <laughs> works. like, oh my God. Oh, yeah. Yes. But, you know, yeah, story for another time, I suppose. Story for another time. <laughs> there are
1: so many. I I'm, I'm now on my, I have a Rex list on DreamWit. And I'm just scrolling through it and like, oh, and that, oh, that one. I yeah, that I, know. That one. I know, I know,
0: I <laughs> know. Actually, you know what? Here's a little snippet, and then I'll I'll end, um, you know, <laughs> right. I'll end the show here. <laughs> but um, the reason why I created a A O three username in the first place was because I had read so much snarry at that point <laughs> that I could not remember the names of all of the stories that I loved and was devastated when I couldn't find them again. So I was like, you know what, this is not happening. So (laughs) that's why I have an AO3 username, you guys. It's because of Harry Potter, it's because of Snary in particular, that there were just so many stories that I could not lose again. That I needed a way to bookmark them. So there you go. There,
1: is a yes, little piece of <laughs> I... trivia
0: for you all.
1: That is perverse lovely. idol. Thank
0: you so much for being here today and talking to me. Do you have any last
1: words for us before we close out? Oh, I think I am completely talked out. <laughs> I think the only thing I'd be capable of once again is if we kept talking about other people's fix I could continue to rhapsodize about them. Oh but, um, same. But otherwise I'll just say I have been a Snape Harry fan for 15 years, 16 years and I still have I have at least 5 works in progress. I mean, it's just it's it will just keep going. <laughs> it's like this is what I do in fandom. I have other secondary fandoms that I love, but there is something about Snape Harry that will not let me go, and I'm fine with
0: that. Good. It's like the gift that keeps on giving.
1: <laughs> and <laughs> thank <is> indeed. God. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> thank you for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Folks, check out her stories on AO3. Give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, On Instagram and Twitter, at Fanfic Maverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.